You folks see that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says, applesauce. No, no, I, I'm kidding. It says, applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. Heaven, I'm in heaven. And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And I seem to find the happiness I see. When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Rapol, and with us we have a very special guest. Um, you might know him from... Uh, your apartment building. If, if you live in Lincoln, uh, if you live in Lincoln Park, Chicago, you might you might know him from uh, calling you at your house and asking for money for muscular dystrophy. Uh, but we're very happy to have him, Tony Valdivieso. Thank did you. I, did I get that right? Oh, that's great. No, actually, <laughs> we've only <laughs> known each other for eight so. years. Though, yeah, so. that's it's it's only been the eight, so <laughs> that's that's fine. Well, you would know how to say your last name. Yeah. So. But well, don't. No, I won't. <laughs> the ten, keep it a mystery. Is wonderful. Yeah. In fact, that little little incentive. I Patrick this is gets called off a on tension. This is called a this is called a teaser. Uh, you stick around till the end of the episode. Tony is going to tell you how to pronounce his last name. Ooh. Maybe I'll spell it too if I feel a little uh, peculiar. <laughs> Sounds like a special episode to me. It is. Uh, we're, it is a special episode for me because we're talking about my favorite director, Woody Allen. We are. Yeah, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, his movies Manhattan and Purple Rose of Cairo. Uh, neither of which are my favorite Woody Allen movies, but I mean they're not my w- number one favorite, but they are. They should be right up Incredible. there. Incredible. Yes, mm-hmm. they're very good. They're numbers two and three. Um, and what, what I thought was interesting about the two picks was that one movie, Woody Allen really likes himself. Yes. The other, he does not yeah. that's, at all. That's, that's true. That's Pre- uh, he has yeah. cited Purple Rose of Cairo as being his favorite movie. And that he's Manhattan, done? Uh, that he's wow. done. Um, and then Manhattan, he did not want released. Mm-hmm. He offered to uh, direct a movie for free. From the for the uh, for United Artists, if they didn't release, maybe it. it was too self-revealing. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it seems a little bit like that way in retrospect. Yeah. But uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. Um, Indeed, we will. I, I believe we have a couple of emails Ooh, to talk yeah. about this week. Actually. That's correct. Um, let me get to my Gmail. I should have just kept that. All right. Open. Well, uh, I, I'll, we got it. We got one very in-depth email that uh, we enjoyed reading very much from Luke Crocker. Uh, he has a podcast. Uh, um, I we haven't listened to it, so we don't. We have a very strict code of ethics where we can't <laughs> plug it. No, I'll, I'll go ahead. It's called New to Movies. New, New to Movies dot com. Oh, is that it's dot yeah. com? Yeah. All right, cool. I'm glad he snatched that up. Yeah, because so we'll give it a listen and see. What it we has think. about half the credibility if it's dot net. True. And if it's dot biz, it, it it might as well not exist. Only Biz Marquee can do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just a friend dot biz. <laughs> Oh, that'd be great. Anyway, uh, he sent a very long, long email, which uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's longer than the director's cut of Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. That is true. It is. Um, no, but um, uh, he talked about a couple things. Um, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting was he took issue with our uh, spoilers. Now, our spoilers policy, if you don't know, is uh, if it's over, if it's more than two years old, it's fair game. Um, fair game. 
Uh, As in the Sidney Crawford movie? Yes, because that is okay. more than two years old. Right. Um, and if it's not more than two, if it's not more than two years old, then it's something else. But <laughs> yeah. I have a. No. I, I'm totally with you on this, Patrick. That's I how think. my DVD. I, I'm, I'm by the way, that's how my DVDs are organized <laughs> on my shelves. It's fair game and everything else. <laughs> um, that would get confusing because there's two but, fair games. And so. I, and he, I totally understand his position. Uh, he 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 says that um, there's very there's like basically no. I mean, with exceptions where it's based off a true story and you know exactly what's going to happen, like he said, Titanic or Apollo 13. Um, there's basically no instances in which not knowing what happens may, doesn't make it better, which I think right. I would agree with. I Yeah, totally. But here's uh, and uh, here's the thing that at least this is I don't I, I put I sort of put this um, this two year limit on myself, but I didn't ever even really got your uh, your take on it. But uh, basically, I feel that and this is actually a problem I have with most film reviews I read. Um, it's. It really hurts discussion if you're talking around something. I believe absolutely. If, if you're going to talk about a movie, you should talk about the movie as a whole. That's start, finish, ending. And it, if a movie, if a movie is well made, usually its ending says something about its beginning, and things play off. And if you're writing a review, I know there is a way to review it and be careful about mm-hmm. the words you use so you don't spoil anything. But um, I think when you're having a conversation. Uh, you want it to be organic, and yes. you, don't, you don't want it to just all of a sudden stop in the middle of it and be like, "Oh, wait a minute." Uh, yeah, and that's anyway, what's, and that's remember why I that thing. To one if, if you know that thing I'm thinking about, right? You know the the thing with the place and yeah. the and the apple, or you know, like it's it's not good. And this is a podcast. We're t- we're discussing movies, and I mean, I don't. I actually, I have to say, I don't listen to a lot of uh, film podcasts. I do, a yeah, little, you little do. too much. But, um, what are what are well, most film... Cause, well, th- that's the problem I have with the Slash film cast, is that yeah. that's exactly what happens. They're really getting deep into a movie. Which you love, by the way. You love the Slash film cast. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I just yeah, I wanted do. to say that we're not, we're, not trying to start a, we're not trying to start a war with the no, Slash film cast. No, we don't want to start wars with the podcasting community, yeah. because they do what we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but... Actually, the, the one um, thing they do now is, you know, they, in the middle of their discussions, they go, "Let's just save it for the spoiler discussion. Let's just save it for later." And that so they divide the podcast, the yeah, discussion into two parts. Yeah, pretty much. Where mm. they really do a lot of tiptoeing, and then while they're discussing the movie in I, great detail, they say, "Wait a minute, no, let's let's save that for later. Let's save that oh, for the spoiler I think, discussion." I think I, saw, I think Film Junk did that with Inception on an episode. Yeah. I, an episode, and yeah, and Inception again. I understand why they would do that, and that's why I say two years if it's. Um, and they did that with Shutter Island, which is a movie you definitely don't want to know too right. much about. And yeah. I understand not wanting stuff spoiled, but at the same time, I don't think um, knowing what happens. Like I would say, most great movies that I have seen um, were way before my time. You want to talk about Psycho? You want to talk about The Godfather? You want to talk about North by Northwest? You want to talk about The Birds? Just any. Pretty much any really great movie. Did you say the burbs? The, the <laughs> I should have. Tom Hanks. Yeah. Vehicle. Yeah. We, we big twist ending there. Joe Don. We we should. We're probably we're doing Joe Dante later for sure. Oh, you love for, Joe Dante, yes, and yes. I I really like Joe Dante. But uh, the birds. Uh, I mean, right. any movie that's in the public consciousness has been spoiled. Um, mm-hmm. Psycho's one of my favorite movies. There's never been a time I saw it where I didn't know um, that she was going to die in the shower. Yeah. And, um, and again, 
Sorry if about, I spoiled it for you. What about this, you know, and something like The Sixth Sense where the, the big twist is... Well, that uh, is a joke now. The yeah. joke now, like, that is... If you watch sitcoms at all, then even if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, you know how it ends because that's the big joke where, oh, you spoiled the end of Sixth Sense. I didn't want to know that Bruce Willis is dead. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one thing a couple of podcasts do is that they put... Um, like the uh, the time code of you know when this is being discussed. Oh yeah. Like for when we're discussing a particular movie, I would put this is at the twenty minute mark. Yeah. We stop talking about it at the forty minute mark. Well, that seems they, like a lot of extra work for you, the producer. Nah, it's not. If horrible. you want to do that, that's fine. It, they put it in like the show notes, so that right. way people, if they haven't seen the movie, they can just skip that part of the uh-huh. podcast. And I will make I'll make an exception for like if we were talking about Old Boy. Um, then again, I, w- I want to do Park Chan-wook at some time, and I don't want to talk about that movie without talking about the ending. Yeah. So, but yeah, if that's... we're mentioning Old Boy in casual discussion, I'm not going to say the ending. I'm not going to, I mean, I will, tr- but for the most part, I don't like having to have in the back of my mind the whole time. Am I allowed to say this? Am I allowed to say this? Is this too much? Is this too little? You know, like, right. I want to have a conversation about movies for God's sakes. So. Yeah. I, and we I don't want to. We don't want to feel too restrained in 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 our discussions. We want them to just flow casually, and we do want to bring up major plot points if they add something to the conversation. Absolutely, we're not gonna, we're not spoiling things willy nilly. Like I bet you didn't know that. Um, let's see, what's a movie that just came out? Oh, at the end of Thor, uh, Bruce Willis is dead. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we're not just doing that. We're not just dropping... Uh... He's dead at the end of every movie at this point. <laughs> you know, I'm actually... Now that I'm thinking about it, like, now that celebrity deaths have become... Like, they're primarily the pe- person dying and their friends and family being sad. But their number two um, reason for existing is for people to practice their quick draw jokes on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking yeah. about? No, I know. I definitely try to take part whenever something happens. It's always exciting. It's always like, oh, let me try my hand at this. Let's see. This person I, uh, just died. I've had so. 45 seconds. Macho Man Randy Savage joke now. Yep. <laughs> you know when Bruce Willis dies, thousands and thousands of Sixth Sense jokes. <sighs> yeah. Let's. In fact, I'm, I'm just going to say day. it now. Looks like Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Guess what? I just said it. So now when he <laughs> dies, you can't, guys can't say it. I was the first one. I'm going to do a diehard thing. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. Oh. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do an obscure diehard thing and I'll reference the German title. I'm like, guess he wasn't a tough nut to crack. <laughs> Live free and pass quietly in the night among yeah. his family and friends. <laughs> I'll, do a, I'll do a color of night joke. <laughs> anyway. Make it really obscure. Unbreakable? More anyway. like them. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it was interesting, though, in talking about spoilers, that you mentioned Inception, which I won't spoil or right, anything. Right. But with a movie like that, or Memento, say, mm-hmm. when the ending right. or all the facts can be interpreted in a number of ways, I definitely think a discussion without any holds barred would benefit like Oh, absolutely. Everyone. And, mm-hmm. and we, have said, we have said on certain episodes... We are going to just start discussing the ending now, so go ahead, skip ahead if you don't want to hear it. And but I don't, we we don't make a habit of trying to do that every time. But yeah. and again, Incep- here's for, the other for thing. Memento I, and yeah, and Inception. Here's the other thing I feel: Inception was a huge cultural thing. Mm-hmm. If it's been two years and you still haven't seen it, yeah. you weren't that interested. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so that's the other thing I feel is that it, two years, if you like are dying to see it, then you'll see it in two years. Yeah, and if you'll... you're not dying to see it. Or wait to listen to the episode until you see the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, I, I want people to listen if you want to, to put episode, the time, If you want but... to do the time code stuff, that would be a nice way where it won't intrude how we do the show. But I'll especially do it for the Christopher Nolan episode. Because yeah. Memento, I feel like, I know it's, what, 2000 that came All out? All of his movies. Yeah. Following, Memento, uh, The Prestige. Have... Do you remember yeah. we saw the... Okay, the yeah. fun, fun story about The Prestige real quick, and then we'll get to the second email. Uh, we, have a, we have a good friend, Kristen Wesley, um, and she has a little problem telling people apart. Uh, everyone, like, you know, the, you know the stereotypical all Chinese people, all black people look alike to me? All people look alike to her. Yeah. <laughs> um, the movie ended... She did not know that Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale were two different people. (laughs) So the fact that there were multiple Christian, like multiple Hugh Jackmans and like, and they were like, and they were like, that's doubly confusing. And they were like putting on disguises and stuff. She, it was, it was like just watching a blinking screen to her. She did not know what the fuck was going on. That's going to be tough. That was, that's, that was definitely one of my favorite reactions to the end of a movie ever. Must what? be tough for when she watches Lost Highway. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think <laughs> it's a Lynch movie. I think all of us with all of our faculties have trouble watching Lost Highway. Nah. All right, well we'll talk about that later. I think if you do a Christopher Nolan episode, you should break up the podcast into different bits. Oh yeah, throw them in at different times. <laughs> yeah, give have people a... the option to listen to it chronologically. Oh or yeah, yeah, the yeah. Director's cut. It'd be great it. if we did a backwards episode. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to have um, uh, film critic Eric Childress on for the Christopher Nolan episode pretty soon. I don't know. If it'll be July or August. I'm think, really so. excited to talk about The Prestige because that's, a, that's an he interesting movie. He loves that movie. Yeah, and that is an interesting movie that it, I like. I uh, I saw it and I didn't like it very much. And then the I more I it. thought about it, I I sort of thought about I I don't think I – there's I still have a lot of problems with it. But He'll, he's, he wants to sell us on why this is an amazing I, movie. I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's get to our second email. Thank you very yeah. much, Luke, uh, for emailing. Did you us. want to acknowledge what his other question was in terms of what is the point of our show? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. At one I mean, point, it, at one was, point, he wrote, no. "What is the point of your show?" With three, that was. I don't think it was, was intended as no, no. He, he, it was funny. He, but... You know, his introduction was like, "We're I'm really enjoying your show." No, no. I think is... he just wants to know what our intent is. I guess. Behind... No, no, no. Well, that was that was in regards to if that was the in regards to the spoilers. Sure. If, if we're talking about people, if if we're trying to introduce people to movies like the Losi episode would be yeah or if or if we're trying to talk about you know the people have already seen it and I think it's both I think we can mm-hmm. do both but uh, anyway because I mean even we just going back to you know going from Joseph Losi to John McTiernan we talked about Die Hard which you know everybody have, at this point in time I would yeah. hope has seen Die Hard Predator yeah um, I, it's just I, sort of elaborating on uh, why those I, movies and are again, great this is this is totally subjective opinion so uh, I mean I respect uh, I, I respect Luke's uh, opinion, but I think some people make too big a deal about spoilers. Um, right. I, and I, and I, for the most part, it's it's not something that bugs me. But something that does bug me is when I people are talking around something, mm-hmm. or like when I read a review and it's only talking about like the first act, and then like it's like, and then the ending comes and it will blow you away, <laughs> and it really ties into the beginning, but I can't say how because this movie just came out, and it's. It's I much rather review I like like reading like Roger Ebert's great movies pieces or like you know AV Club does pieces on older movies where they're not afraid to spoil stuff and they talk about the movie as a whole. Right. So and it's you know I'm it's, in, I'm in agreement. Yeah, totally. and it's our and it's our podcast, so we get to do it. 
Yeah, and I don't mind if our podcast goes over two hours. Sorry, Luke. Oh yeah, he, he said he preferred it to be an hour, uh, to be closer to an hour than two hours. That's kind of which tough, I think I agree we, with. But we we go, we go off on a lot of tangents, yeah. and you either go with it or you won't. But I, you know, anyway, most podcasts I listen to are. I think kind we of should, Speaking of, I think we should oh, get to yeah, the next okay, thing. Okay. okay. Right. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Luke. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um. Anyway, our other. Uh, Email comes courtesy of Sean Pantau, hmm. I believe. Pantau? Panto. Of the a, Connecticut Pantaus? Maybe. Hmm. Hey, it says, hey, J and P, really enjoying the podcast so far. I I've trust. noticed I've noticed a couple of yeah it is I've noticed a couple of things that you can confirm or deny based on the first ten episodes. Jim seems to look at movies for emotional connection, while Patrick looks at movies as a well-structured artistic statement. Not saying that's the case for every film, but it seems to be a recurring thing I've noticed. Yes, I would agree. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I mean, obviously, we, we go back and forth, but I, yeah, I would say that you... I wasn't watching Die Hard for an emotional connection. Well, no, 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 no. obviously. And I, that's, they, she said there's, there's yeah, and there, yeah, I know, I know. But I, I, that's definitely a, a huge reason why I love going to the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, I fall somewhere in between. Most uh, general audiences don't seek out a movie for analysis, but rather just a good time or a diversion. With that in mind, what comedy directors are you considering for future episodes? The reason I ask is because humor being so subjective... It is difficult to give a critical assessment of a comedy since it mainly depends on a laugh ratio. Even if you think something is funny, it is likely that the guy next to you may not find the exact same thing funny. I don't find the Marx Brothers funny and never enjoyed the Farrelly Brothers. It's been hard to find it's been hard to find it's been hard to find the right blend of absurdity and intellect outside of something like Monty Python. I know you mentioned Woody Allen for an episode, and his earlier work definitely struck a chord with me while his mid-80s transition was not that exciting for me. Just wondering if more comedy directors will be worth tackling down the road. Looking forward to more episodes and keep up the great discussions. Cheers, Sean. Thank you, Sean. You don't like the Moish Brothers. I I, yeah, it's tough. I, know. I turn into Nick Nolte whenever I hear anyone say they don't like the Although, Moish Brothers. Although, I mean, if he, some, like some of the, especially the earlier Woody Allen movies owe a lot to the slapstick absurdity oh, of the Marx Brothers. It's Marx Brothers and Bob Hope and... Yeah. Uh, Little Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, for uh, sure, especially in Sleeper. But um, here's the thing about doing comedy directors, uh, and it's something I've, I've been sort of wary of doing comedy directors is the least to me. Again, I don't I don't listen to a lot of movie podcasts, so maybe Jim has a better idea of how other podcasts tackle this problem. But for me, the least possible interesting thing that you could hear is people listing jokes they like. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's like someone sort of describing a song without singing it. It's it's not you're not getting any you're not getting the actual joke. Um, they can try to do the setup and punchline as much as they can, but there's not going to be the same out but of can, context. Can we de- sort of like deconstruct why something is funny? I mean, in the same way, like I mean, we're both big fans of the WTF with Mark Marin podcast, yeah. and well, they sort of tackle. Well, he he's interviewing the people who. Do the jokes. He's not. Yeah. He's not like saying this episode. We're looking at Bill Cosby himself, and we're right. dissecting the. I mean, it's definitely more interviews of the people behind the comedy, right? Which is that's the different thing. But I think they do discuss like what works in terms of. And I think know. I think both Manhattan and Purple Rose of Cairo would definitely qualify as comedies. Yeah, definitely um, Purple Rose of Cairo. I'd, yeah, I'd say Purple yeah. Rose more than Manhattan, but I, they I all mean, have. 
they're I mean I think Manhattan is so joke heavy though but I I don't want to talk about it now because of Woody yeah but um he wrote it so but (laughs) um well his character gets all the great lines but um uh, we'll we'll get into it later. Yeah, no, I mean, um, but I I, I I agree. Like you know, even some of the podcasts that I've reviewed, bridesmaids, wasn't always the most interesting. You know, as opposed to something more dramatic or something that you can sort of deconstruct a little bit outside of like that was funny and that was funny. Well, yeah, and that like, was funny, and, and it is, and it and it depends on what kind of comedy it is. If it's if it's Doctor Strange Love, there's a million things you can say about it. If it's it's more gag based, like yeah. uh, like Airplane, there's really The only way you could really talk about Airplane in a way that I think would be interesting, and again, this is my own opinion, is like maybe if you talked about what came – how its effect on comedy. like, But you couldn't talk about the movie itself because the movie itself is just a breathless series of gags. And and you you can't talk about characters you can't talk about oh this is a late motif where you know or the there's this is this is social satire like something albert brooks would have done yeah albert brooks is someone real you know real life uh you know modern romance lost in america all these kind of movies you could definitely talk about and right. i i think it and that's that's actually one of the reasons cuz i i love love and uh, woody allen's love and death and sleeper that's yes. one of the reasons i didn't choose them for this podcast is cuz I, maybe love and death a little, but mostly mm-hmm. there's not a lot you can say about them in a you know. I'm I'm sure you can write academic papers and stuff, but not in a conversational. There's a lot, a lot of meat. It's mostly just yeah. jokes that work or don't work. Yeah, I mean it's interesting if we you know can compare like a you know what happened with the Fairley brothers in terms of how they became formulaic after a while. Like their formula <laughs> worked initially with their first three movies, and then after a while what happened to their career and but even what, but at the same time like just even in, in analyzing their early stuff it's like well that that one part in kingpin was really funny yeah and any and and yeah and the only way you can have the conversation then is if you discuss it culturally and then you're not really talking about the movie you're talking about how people responded to the movie yeah and i don't i don't i'm i don't necessarily want to turn this podcast into that though obviously you know that's appropriate for some movies so but we don't want to undermine the comedy genre either, and, and because you know it's harder to make somebody laugh than it is to make them cry. Well, I'm not. I'm not well, I just we I, don't want to dismiss it. But well, we're certainly not comedies. dismissing it. There's, nobody, some, there's some comedies that are, nobody loves. Nobody loves comedy more than I mean. I'm, I'm not going to make that claim. Someone may <laughs> love comedy more than me. You know, I honestly, I bet. Uh, uh, shit, who writes all the Oscars? Bruce Valanche? Yeah, I bet Bruce Valanche likes comedy more than me. <laughs> he seems like that's all he's got in his life. He's making jokes. Yeah. Nobody but... Okay, so I'll say this. Nobody but Bruce Valanche loves comedy more than me. All right. mm-hmm. And I would... You know, and making a great comedy is very hard. I but- know I could talk about What Hot American Summer for a half hour, though. I bet I could. Well, I, I, I hope I, you I, can, because I couldn't. I could. Um, But... uh, So, I, I would want to avoid... I mean... I don't necessarily think that the directors we should choose should be – we should choose them because they're important to film. I think we should choose them because we have things to say about them. Right. So and I'm that's, not – That's I don't, going so far. I don't really want to do a, a Abrams, uh, Zucker Brothers uh oh, I thought you were going to say J.J. Abrams. No, I was no. about to get mad. No. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> want to do J.J. Abrams at this point. Maybe. Can't we just do a whole separate Lost podcast just like everybody else in the world? Did they? Did everyone do Lost podcast? Oh god! Yeah, with a lot of the episodes running a lot longer than the episode length. 
Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, 44 <laughs> minutes, you'd get a two-hour podcast because everyone's talking about Jacob. Who's Jacob? I've watched, like, three What's episodes, that? and that's what... I hate Sawyer so much that I had to turn it off. I, uh, he is so... Un- he's such an annoying character. He's he like, was- I'm a dastardly... Ooh, look at me, I'm dashing, but... I- oh, I'm a scoundrel. Ooh. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> But uh, uh, he was so, better. He was better on Community. I mean, one episode of Community. Well, than we he was even on Lost. even when we did John Landis, <laughs> even when we did John Landis, we kind of avoided talking about the comedy, and we mostly talked about the filmmaking and the of American Werewolf in London, and right. the, and it's just and it. I think that's just the fact of pod, And again, maybe I'm wrong because again, I don't listen to a lot of movie podcasts. But every movie podcast that I have listened to, whenever they talk about comedy, uh, comedies, unless they're talking about like cultural effects or it's something really meaty. It's just, it's just boring. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I Edgar Wright is top five, probably my top five directors. I don't think I'd necessarily want to do an Edgar Wright podcast because I don't. I mean, I love Hot Fuzz, and I could talk about it. I could talk about the sort of the construction of it, but it wouldn't necessarily be as interesting as talking about. Walter I think Hill. you could get a good conversation out of what works and what doesn't work in Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, yeah, maybe. All right. We'll we'll think about it. There's let's not a lot of he, let's put out, let's wait till he puts out a fourth film, film and see where he's at. I mean, we're doing Woody Allen, so we're not afraid to talk about comedy directors. Granted, we're not doing two of his comedies, but some and the reason we're not doing two of his comedies is because we were afraid to talk about them. So let me go ahead and erase. Nobody loves comedy more than me and Bruce Valanche. <laughs> me and Bruce Valanche talk about this constantly. I like to laugh. Yeah, he says that. Yeah, and I agree. Okay, we'll do a whole episode on the Wayne's World movies. I'm I'm positive. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say the Wayans brothers. <laughs> oh man, they direct right. Oh, I'm gonna get you, white sucker. What did they direct? White chicks. I know yeah, they I wrote. I think so. Damon or Keenan Ivory does all the direction when he's not in it. Mm. Like I'm pretty sure Damon is like the figurehead, and he just lets his brothers <laughs> make, make asses of themselves on screen while he's. Behind the camera, he's, he's enjoying the, uh, himself. Keenan Ivory directed White Chicks. Yep. Oh my goodness! So I yeah, really, Mar- like, Marlon like... and Sean are the comedy duo. <laughs> Damon sort of strikes out on his own. He's more of the solo. Uh, so I'd say Marlon and uh, no, no, yeah, yeah, Marlon and Sean—they're more like uh, Ghostface Killer and Raekwon the Chef, where Here they, they collaborate Here a lot. He goes. And then uh, I think Damon—he's either what they more call like two percenter. <laughs> da- Damon is more of a ODB, um, and Keenan Ivory, of course, is RZA. Yeah, why do they call him Two Percenter? Because the joke is so milky, or something? Yeah, maybe that's it. Because Two Percent of the audience got it, maybe. Oh, oh, it's not milk, damn it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's only because you, you and Russ. they call it a Two Percenter because ninety-eight percent. By the way, Wu Tang Clan is not obscure. I could have well, talked no. about Mob Deep. I could have said that Marlon Wayans was the prodigy, and but I'm not doing that. The prodigy, the dance techno band. Mm, let's go on okay. to what we watched this week. Oh, oh what did um, we watch thank you this again. week? It was wait no. Oh, um, Sean, thanks so much for the email. You, you, it was very yeah. kind. Thank you, Sean. And let's go on to what we watched. Here's a conversation. About the movies we watched I'm kind of curious About the movies we watched Oh yeah The movies we watched I'm really 
We're gonna talk about the movies we watch. Because I literally only watched one thing, and it's six minutes long. Thank you, finals mm-hmm. at school. Yeah, for... you've been going through finals. Yeah, it's it's been a blast. You're going to be start... a doctor. I'm starting a research project and all this shit. So, I don't know. I'm, But thankfully, now that the summer's here, I'll be watching more fun stuff. Mm-hmm. The only thing I was um, really excited to talk about, and it's only six minutes long, and I was excited to see it for a while, and I just never got around to it, was... Um, a short film by David Cronenberg called Camera, which is featured on the uh, Videodrome Criterion Collection double disc. I think I sort of, I think I like put it on and then realized that I didn't get it three minutes in. And oh, then just... but it has such an amazing payoff. Oh, well. It's about a retired actor who's like, you know, about to be filmed for a documentary that these young, very young kids are coming in to produce and film and the children are like really into the camera and the process and like sort of the old school element of filmmaking. They have like an editing machine and all these things that are normally not used anymore in contemporary filmmaking. And the children are so enamored with the camera, but the actor, this old elderly actor is like the camera has this infectious malevolent presence and it's, it's evil. And I, I'm expecting, okay, where is this going to go? And it's got some very weird cinematography. Wait, can I, can I guess the ending? Uh, you're not going to be able to guess it because that's what I was expecting. The actor is really vain, and the incredible infectious malevolence is actually that it adds 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not quite. Was I close? I was expecting the kids to start fucking the camera and, like, flesh was going to come out of the camera. It was going right. to turn into, a you know, a David Cron- Cronenbergian thing mm-hmm. where... You know, the old man has a VHS player in his stomach or something. Uh, But it doesn't turn out that way at all. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, But it's really a sweet... Like, this, this sort of showcases his transition from... You know, doing things like Crash and Existence to Spider and then this history of violence where he matured out of sort of the horrific elements and went into more of a humane approach to storytelling and it was surprisingly moving by the end and where it goes and what it says about movies in general and just the passing of the torch or the gauntlet I should say from the older generations to the newer generations in terms of how they want to tell their story but it's not what at all what you'd expect from Cronenberg it's not unlike anything he's ever done before and it was really great but I'm biased because I've loved everything Cronenberg, Cronenberg has done except Crash. So yeah, it was excellent. And if you get the Videodrome DVD from Netflix, you'll find it on there. Maybe I should have stuck around. Yeah. It has a great payoff. Trust me. Because at first, I wasn't with it for the first three minutes. But yeah. Where it bu- I'm a three-minute guy. If you don't have me three minutes, I'm gone. Right. <laughs> Usually gone that's in not 60 even the seconds. credits. You're gone in 60 seconds. If it, basically, I only like movies well, that Saul Bass designs the credits because <laughs> if I don't like the credits, I'm gone. I couldn't tell you I'm excited for the next Cronenberg movie, which is called A Dangerous Method, and it's about Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. If you mm. get Cronenberg and psychology duels going on, I'm excited. I got to brush up on Cronenberg. I love what I've seen, but I'm not 
by any means all the way up to date on him. For those of you interested in more Cronenberg, join us on July 2nd when we will be discussing Cronenberg on this show. Well, that's when we'll be – they won't join us on July well, 2nd because we'll literally. be recording it then. Yeah, we'll, you that's when over. we're Yeah. <laughs> yeah? That's when you can expect to start Jim, checking out the website. You can get a, we can get a bowl of pretzels out. Yeah. You know, what if we started doing a podcast with an audience? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if we're ready for that yet. Yeah? No, let's 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 wait. I'm trying to imagine what kind of in- insane dorks <laughs> would want to watch us do a podcast. <laughs> They're doing it now for Kevin Smith and Doug Benson and, you know. Uh, Doug Benson is yeah, the can, worst host. Can, can I just say that I don't like Doug Benson, like – at all none no. of us none of us do i hate his okay well we, i know we were, we were talking earlier how we don't want to start any uh any uh, wars with any podcast but i i'll go ahead and start a rivalry with uh, i love movies doug loves movies doug loves movies it's the fucking worst podcast i've ever heard i do like the leonard malton game it's fun that well that's the whole po- number one that's the whole podcast is leonard malton game because no, it's, it's safe for like the last 15 minutes of the show and it goes and by- the first 15 minutes are him introducing people First like 45 minutes more <laughs> it's it's, a, it's under no it's under an hour usually i think it's about half the leonard malton game but anyway he doesn't explain the rules of the leonard malton game to the to beforehand his right i know that's so it's like it's it's like watching a game show where half the contestants are don't know what's going on and the other half don't care mm-hmm. and uh it, it's like the worst thing i've ever seen it's the worst thing i've ever listened to um no he's not funny either that i haven't watched it's, 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 i hold off judgment on stand-up i haven't seen it so yeah not a fan sorry doug yeah you sorry, can love doug. movies all you want you're not you're not not a fan of the cast we're gonna start a podcast called we hate doug <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway yeah so why don't you go next Oh right! Um, I watched a I watched a comedy that I hated and a comedy I loved. Which one should I go first? Oh my god! Um, let's start off on a da- sad note. What did, did you hate? Oh, yeah, this bad is, news first. Yeah, yeah. Bad, bad news bears. Bad news. Uh, bad news first. Uh, Empire Records. Mm-hmm. Um, now this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, um, and it's not. It's I wonder not, if you would have felt that way back in 1990, whenever it came out. It doesn't matter. It's it's one I probably would have. I mean, I'm, I was I was like seven, so no, I think I put a. Pro, in fact, I think I I think I first saw it when I was like ten because my my older sister liked it. And she had the videotape, and I think I thought it was funny then. Did you happen to click on the director at all? And yeah, yeah, he 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 did. Did he do Pump Up the Volume? And he did uh, Times Square, uh, which is a mm-hmm. sort of a lost great punk uh, movie from the 70s. Yeah. Um. Guess what? No longer in touch uh, with the youth. There is nothing about Empire Records that doesn't feel like a 60-year-old man watching MTV and going and like just making notes. Uh, Sinead O'Connor. He, he did not write it. That, that's <laughs> or, worth noting. Whoever, whoever he, he wrote it was 60 movie. years old and yeah. made sure – and it is and, – and it's not Mano – and I, here's why I say it's one of the worst movies ever because it's not Manos the Hands of Fate where – It won't – Okay, whatever. <laughs> well, no, this is this okay. is what I hate about it, and this is sort of the discussion I want to have about it, is it is not Manus in the Hand of Fate where it, on a technical level it is just like a failure on a technical level. It's not, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, but what is so insidious about a movie like this is, um, is that it is so shitty and it is like an after-school movie where it's like, where it's like, I'm... Where like it tackles all the big teen issues like shoplifting and and <laughs> and addiction to speed and oh I cut myself and Ooh. and it's 
and it, it like it is the shittiest like by the numbers after school special but it's dressed up in like clerk's clothing <laughs> and and i think movies like that that are so dishonest but still have fan bases are the most frustrating things in the world and this is what i want to talk about the fan base cuz now i have encountered so many empire records fans and i've i've come to realize this is a disproportionate amount most people Apparently, I I just attract the Empire Records uh, <laughs> type, which is the people who 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 don't know what substance is, but but know what indicators are, and they mm-hmm. they just respond to things they that things that are sort of they think that simulate things that are cool. It's it's the tofu of movies where it's like this isn't chicken and it doesn't feel like chicken, but it looks like chicken. It's shaped like chicken and it has a bit of a chicken flavoring in it, so. Um, they're liking it in an ironic way. No, 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 no. They they like it sincerely. They genuinely just, love okay, it. it's like someone saying, "Oh, I love, um, I love hamburgers. McDonald's is the best." It's like that. It's yeah. All right. it, uh, um, the McDonald's is associated with it. Whatever. Okay, so I've <laughs> I've encountered. They're usually uh, nineteen to twenty two year old girls. Um, I've I've noticed, um, and. They love quoting Empire Records apropos of nothing. They'll just say, damn the man, and what's with today today, and other things that aren't actually jokes, but are like said as if they're they're said, and then there's a pause for the audience to laugh. Mm-hmm. But but they're no they're not actually jokes. There's no there's nothing there. Um and I I think it is so annoying. Um and it is so frustrating when people like things that you have no reason to like. Uh, that it's 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 not even it's not even like subjective. It's just like it's if you want to like Empire Records, then be a Clerks fan because there's it's not that oh Empire Records is just a certain taste. It's Empire Records is a shitty version of actual good movies. So anyway, yeah, I find it strange that there's a cult. Oh yes, this movie. I really do because I don't think it's that good. I don't hate it, but it is. I when's the last time you saw of, it? Coming now, ten years maybe. But okay, coming, coming off of Pump Up the you Volume, you'll be amazed at how bad the acting is, how bad the writing is, how bad the tone the tone shifts is. Like the directing, pretty um, there's pretty much not a good moment in it. Right, and it is, and for a comedy, no laughs is bad, but for comedy that thinks it's no laughs and it thinks it's hip, it's insufferable. And that's... Well, I'm just... That's another reason. I, again, I've, I brought up this argument before and you and you sort of suggest that it's not valid in that, like, I really want you to see Pump Up the Volume, but my fear is that it's so dated that it won't, it won't affect you. Like, well, you had to have been in a certain age range to have gotten, you know, what that movie was going for. And now, like, the references or the clothing or the... The, just the attitude of the movie itself may not work. Well, but I'm, my, I'm hoping it does. Well, th- I, here's why I don't think that's a valid argument. If it's a good movie, it isn't just references, right? If it's a good, like I don't, and there's not I, that I, many I references. Not, I was not than... a, I was not a teenager in the '80s, but Heather's is great. I right. love Heather's. I wasn't, I wasn't a teenager when Teen Suicide was a big hot topic issue, hot mm-hmm. button issue. I wasn't like, but Heather's is great. And I don't need to yeah. be from the 80s to love Heathers. But if a movie, if people's connection to it is these people like what I like, then time That's will annoying. show. Then time yeah, no. will then time will expose the movies for what they are. Right. 
Um, I mean, I have legitimate reasons for liking Pump Up I'm the not, Volume. I haven't seen Pump Up the Volume, so yeah. I'm not saying either way. But, I, I but think I'm saying the, I, if I it's a good think, movie... I think that's the only good movie he's done, <laughs> from what well, I can uh, No, I've, I've heard there's a there was a screening of his movie from the 70s, Times Square. Right, I haven't seen that. So. Um, and that was like, it's like a punk rock movie, and I've seen clips of it, and it looks pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, so apparently he was once in touch with youth. Um, Pump Up the Volume was like yeah. 91. It wasn't even... And but, that's really carried with Christian Slater's really impassioned performance i mean a lot of it is it's like a it's a little bit more of a heavy-handed kind of version of heathers but it's still really about like a pirate radio station yeah. right yeah i'm excited to see it i think it's amazing i like it's, the it's, i like the subject matter it's talk radio meets heathers because there's some preachy elements to it it's yeah. heavy-handed but i there's something about well, no that i'll movie. see it and i i'm not saying it's bad or good because i haven't but i understand where I'm you're saying... coming from where people who just jump aboard on something that doesn't it, and I, I think that's see, it's not worth it <laughs> yeah and it's um and it's and it's uh that's it's like the people who like family guy because like oh man yeah i think that chick is ugly too like <laughs> like family guy doesn't even do jokes they just like go oh man you're fatter than candace bergden's fat ass thighs what a whore and then it like it shows a clip from murphy brown where she's walking around and she's like a circus tent thighs or whatever and it's like now, is it just because you actively dislike Empire Records so much that you can't fathom people liking it? And well, it's just that it's like what if such... what if you knew about about fifty people that liked Can't Hardly Wait? Would you have the same? I haven't seen Can't Hardly Wait. Oh, okay, but I'm curious. Then it's about that. here's the thing about here's the thing about Empire Records fans. There are people. I Can't Hardly Wait is the shitty teen movie about the party and Jennifer Love Hewitt. Everyone yeah. wants to fuck Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh... I think just one guy. But, okay. You know, I don't know. Um, anyway. I can't remember it too well, but I did. I liked it more than this. All right. Anyway, here's the point about people who aren't movie people, they'll like whatever they liked as a kid. They'll like the Goonies because they saw Goonies as a kid. They like Flight of the Navigator because they saw Flight of the Navigator as a kid. Both are true for me. They're, uh, <laughs> their, favorite, their favorite movies are the ones that they grew up watching. And because they're, they don't like movies, they like nostalgia. But they I like can the acknowledge like. that the Goonies is not a good movie. Right. And that's, and that's fine. That's not my point. My point is... The difference between someone who's a big fan of, say, She's All That and a big fan of the, of the Rachel Lee Cook movie where he doll that's like it. he. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, just. Yeah, yeah. You're making a face like you weren't sure if you knew. Well, I'm just. I can't imagine people liking All right. Movie. Well, <laughs> someone. Or, well, I would just say Can't Hardly Wait is in the same. But I, again, right. I haven't seen Can't Hardly Wait, but just everything I've seen. And someone who likes Empire Records is Empire Records fans thinks, think because the movie thinks it's hip and they, like, they think they're movie fans. Like they, cause, because number one, Empire Record does not have a big following, and it because it flopped, because like they feel like they've discovered something, and they feel like like they're championing something. It's not just oh, I like that movie because it's they feel like oh my god, no one has seen Empire Records, and I don't know why because it's so great, and like they feel like they're they're preaching it and they're evangelizing. Okay, the so, as opposed to someone who likes. You know, Twilight. No one likes Twilight and they think that they are in on something, you know? No one is going to deny Twilight is popular. And I don't, I don't, you know. Anyway, I was going to ask you guys, this this went a little long. What what movies or, you know, properties or, you know, TV shows or whatever do you think has the most insufferable fans? Hmm. Uh, well, uh, I, I think that uh, for the most part, because, you know, being of the age that you and I are at least, and yeah. I'm sure Jim knows about it too, but uh, hanging out with a big group of guys, it's hard to avoid a gaggle of Lord of the Rings references whenever you get together. 
God. And it's just yeah. like they don't read the books. They don't know anything about the books. Whatever you the shall movie, not pass. Whatever the movie leaves out, they don't yeah. know anything about. But they just love the movie so much. They're a they champion don't know shit of the movie. Tom Bombadil. No, exactly. They don't know anything about that. Uh, and just hmm. yeah, it's just shit like that where it's like as uh, opposed. To, so you you would make a distinction as opposed to people who are fans of Lord of the Rings, the book series, and the Hobbit, and everything that. Yeah. All the J.R. Tolkien lore, people who are a fan of specifically the movies, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and it's like, I feel like they're, it's partly that weird sensation that's been happening recently where it's like, it's not really nerdy to see the movie, but they think that it is. And they think that because they are like conscious of how nerdy it is, well, that yeah. it's really cool. Yeah, and there's, chic. There's, a, there's a nerd cool kind of thing, which I think. I think sort of the best example of that is the super um, by the numbers mo- uh, show Big Bang Theory, where it's it's like super by the numbers Ooh. and oh, shit. all right, How I Met Your Mother fans. I don't, I don't. I know a couple. That's that's another thing that I I don't understand. I, even it's not. I haven't a, I haven't I seen How You Met. I I think I, my opinion is it's 2011. There's no reason for me to watch a current sitcom with a laugh track. Or mm-hmm. or a live studio audience, either one. There's no reason to watch CBS. <laughs> yes, well, no, CBS. There's absolutely no reason. I lost this off the air, so no reason to watch ABC either. I don't think. Not really. Mm, no. Yeah. Unless like sports are on or something. Yeah, I guess. I could see how people were annoyed at me for my lost. That's when I turned into like a Trekkie. Like I never understood oh, yeah? the Trekkie sort of mentality. But then Lost, for some reason, just worked for me. Yeah, well, yeah. And it's and I think it's an interesting point you brought up, Tony, where it's like there's some accepted nerdy things where, like, I would say that's a good example. I don't think it's yet cool to be super into Star Trek, but I think if people are really into Lost and they like discussing all the details the exact same way Star Trek fans would mm-hmm. discuss details, I think that is sort of an accepted cool thing. I think Harry Potter is another one where I just... I hear people – I mean this is mostly online on the internet. People are constantly posting things about Harry Potter or Harry Potter like fan comics yeah. that are like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if if uh, Harry and uh, uh, Draco were gay? You know, like, like oh, <laughs> this is Snape saying something weird and here's Exhibit saying, hey, dog, I heard you like Patronus, so I put a Patronus in your Patronus, blah, blah. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I think Harry Potter is another accepted nerd thing. Um, right. But it, would that be lumped into the, like the Twilight people? I, th- I think Harry Potter is even more widely accepted. Where it's like, I don't know, so widely accepted that potentially it's nerdy that it loses all nerdiness. Whereas Lord I of the guess, Rings, and another thing about yeah. the Lord of the Rings people is that just because uh, you know it's a popular film and it's like above average, they think it's the greatest film. Oh that's yes, ever been that, made. that is very frustrating when people. Mm-hmm. When people take a legitimately good movie and they elevate it to masterpiece and then you don't even want to like like I I think Dark Knight is a really good movie. We me and Tony <laughs> yeah, both yeah. saw Dark Knight multiple times in theaters. Um but it is uh, not the greatest movie of all time. Yeah. And there it is there are that people who really just, drove me nuts. Yeah, the and acclaim that, that is, I think that is that is one of the I think that's one of the key ways in which fan bases can make you like I again, that'll I've, be interesting to talk about with Eric on the Nolan episode. Yeah, he's definitely one of those. Oh yeah, where Dark he Night freaks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's good, but it has so many problems. I think it's good. I would yeah. like. Okay, there are I, people listening. A, send in an email. Explain to me what happens the moment. <laughs> 
from okay, the chunk of the film from when Batman finds the bullet in the wall to when Batman is in the apartment and then the window shade automatically goes up. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the shooting on the on the parade. Um what the hell happens in that like ten minute section? None of it makes any sense. It's like it takes a ten minute break from logic and cause and effect and then just has Batman like building fingerprints and the fingerprints lead to an apartment which yeah. is some like hmm. no no sense anyway i i think i have an example cuz okay. i think it's the first thing that made me actively <laughs> dislike a, a a cult surrounding a movie and that was Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, the people were wearing the vote for Pedro shirts and everything. That was I, which that, yeah, went that's, on. Go ahead. It went on forever. That, well, that, yeah, that that's that's that was very prevalent at a, mm-hmm. for a good two three years. Yeah. Um, I think I think both the the, the filmmaker and the the actor playing Napoleon Dynamite never doing anything else of any value sort of helped qua- like quiet down some of those rabid fans. Right. Because it's it wasn't like a Kevin Smith situation where every year they were excited and they could rally around him and his work. It was like, oh, that was a one thing, and that was. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you going to say? I'm sorry, Tony. I was going to say that, like I remember uh, you and I being excited when it was first yes. coming out because it looked funny. But then, uh, like, just more and more people kept hearing about it, and that doesn't you know detract away from the you know merits of the film. But like for some reason, it just kept going on and on for like. Two, three years where yeah. people, yeah. like two years <laughs> exactly. after it came out, they're like, hey, vote for Pedro, right? Yeah. This is <laughs> gosh. This is this cool, hip new movie that I heard about on MTV.com. It's like the guy's doing the Borat imitations two years later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Borat. Borat. When I saw Borat in theaters, I was convinced it was the funniest movie ever made. You ever, uh, have you ever seen a movie? No, no, no. I'm, yeah. this is, I don't think this is the case. Right, right. But this is, this is my response. It was a packed theater. It was so packed there were people standing. Um, they oversold somehow, mm-hmm. um, or people snuck in. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. There are people standing, uproarious laughter, start to finish. Have you ever watched a movie where you're laughing so hard, like you're still laughing from the last joke, and then a new joke comes, and you can't laugh hard enough, like you're out of breath? Yeah. And it, like that was how I felt during Borat. Um, if that, that was, was that'd that... be the case for when I saw there's something about Mary in the theater. Oh yeah, like people were just laughing nonstop. That was a big deal when that. I, was. I was too young to have seen that in theaters. Yeah, um, but it was a bit much. <laughs> that the response to that was like, "This is the funniest movie I've seen since Airplane," you know. And I, I, I think it's good that every once in a while, and I, even if the movies aren't good, like I think both comedy and horror are, are. It's good that every once in a while there's something that's just huge and launches people's careers. You know, mm-hmm. like I think Zach Galifianakis, he's not ma- necessarily making the best career choices right now, but I think he's very funny. So I'm happy The Hangover was successful. Yeah. yeah. And I don't uh, think I don't think Napoleon Dynamite's a horrible movie. I just don't think it warranted the there are this the the kind of following it no. had and well, the fact that I'd be at work and I'd ask him, "So what are you doing today?" and he's like, "Whatever I want to do." Gosh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, all right, guys. Enough. Um, there are, I, in fact, I think that might be interesting. What are some movies that you think they're cult that have huge cult followings that are warranted? Because I would say there's few. Um, I yeah, I can't. Really I can think of I can think of one off the top of my head. The Big Lebowski. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Is that is that a cult? I thought that was just accepted. No, that no, it's, it's turned into a cult. It, it's 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 a huge cult, um, but it is not. 
to where like, there is a Lebowski it is, religion. If it is not, a, there's something about Mary where it's ever been a lot of money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, but like when that movie came out, it flopped, and it wasn't until because they were people were expecting Fargo. Like mm-hmm. they, I think the same thing kind of happened with Burn After Reading, where following No Country for Old Men, people weren't exactly sure what to. Like people were kind of disappointed. It felt kind of minor to them. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, obviously. Big Lebowski's better than Burn After Reading, but it's I think Big Lebowski's the one cult movie that totally earns it, um, and that's I, I completely agree. I mean, other I mean there are I bet there are movies with smaller cult followings, and then somewhere along the line, there's movies that about e- equal. Like I'd say maybe yeah. Evil Dead Two, probably its cult following is about equal to its quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway. No, it's interesting to to just see how pop culture, you know, affects people and into large masses at times. Yeah. So, um I and I want to I want to talk really quick. You you mentioned Bridesmaids, so I don't want to I don't want to get into a conversation about comedy where I just list jokes. Um I saw Bridesmaids, fucking loved it. Good. Um I'm excited. It's to outstanding. See it. Everything about it is I think the directing is great, the writing is great, every performance is really great. The only person I'd say on the set who did a bad job is whoever was doing uh, Maya Rudolph's makeup and mm-hmm. uh, the lighting on her, I guess, because uh, she's very cute. She was in MacGruber. She looked fine. Um, she's a very cute woman in general. She's married to one of my favorite directors. Oh, who is she married to? Paul Thomas Anderson. Really? really? Yeah. That's is she, what, is she in his movies ever? No, I don't think so. Huh. I don't know how I they didn't know she up. was married to Paul Thomas Anderson. That's great. Yeah. Um, she looks they have, horrible. They have two kids together. Yeah. She looks horrible in the movie. Hmm. Like maybe something happened. Maybe she, before filming, she you know got pregnant or like something. But she looks horrible in the movie. Anyway, that's not a big point in the movie. I just that was one thing I haven't seen mentioned, and I don't want to repeat what everyone else has <laughs> said. I don't want anyone to think that that movie is. Uh, I'm is, happy for uh, exists so you can ogle at I'm happy cute for, women. Uh, Melissa McCarthy and. She's yes. I've always liked her since Gilmore Girls. So I'm yeah, I never. I didn't know she was in Gilmore Girls, but she but, steals uh, the movie. People oh, are saying the. Uh, she's the chubby, chubby one, one, the fat one. Yeah. Um, I was going to say redhead, but there are two. <laughs> no, so no. I guess, yeah. The I, if I was going to who's the the red, there's the redhead who's on the office. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember her name. Ellie something. Kemper. Ellie Kemper. Hey, Kemper there we go. She's funny too. She's cute. Um, the Wendy something Covey um, from Reno Nine One One. She's very yeah, funny she, in it. Yeah, I, like I think. Her. I think Ellie and her, um, they got sort of shortchanged. I bet on the DVD there's going to be a lot more scenes with them because they've kind of like the setups for arcs. But that's another that's another uh, great – and then, okay, this is one of the things I want to talk about. Two things I want to talk about the movie. One, um, in the sort of – I would call this the Apato era of comedy right. from sort of Anchorman to – and I'd say it's probably maybe fading a little bit now ever since Funny People. But for a good five years or so, five you know five to ten years – um, it's sort of been the Apatow era comedy, and one thing that has sort of been there's not been many of is big set pieces. Apatow usually you know finds his comedy through like improvisation and, and you know funny lines and you mm-hmm. know characters and stuff like that, and you know finding more of the emotion. There's not like the, there's something about Mary where oh this happens and that leads to this happens and things keep getting bigger and you know snowballing um, out of control. Um, Bridesmaids has a couple of those scenes. Um, Especially, particularly the scene on the airplane where it just keeps getting funnier and funnier and funnier, and things build on each other 
and it, it is so mm. great, and I, I hurt myself laughing. Yeah, I haven't. I can't think of anything recently like that. Sort of starts and then builds to like a crescendo. Yeah, there's in terms there's of a comedy. Comedy, comedy has been sort of being more weird, and it's sort of taking different rounds, which I like. You know, movies like MacGruber or Hot Rod. Hot Rod. <laughs> any any movie directed by members of the Lon- Lonely Island. Sure. It is weird that Lonely Island are so good at directing comedies, but so horrible at making uh, comedy music. Yeah, their new record's terrible. <laughs> I hate Lonely Island, but that's neither here nor there. So I thought that was interesting. Um, also, I wanted to talk about uh, Kristen Wiig, because I feel she's like probably the most divisive person in comedy today. I've always found her funny. I mean, I think on SNL she plays it too broad. Yeah. Well, but... here's the thing about SNL. You get what you're written Mm-hmm. Um, and they keep writing these characters for her. And apparently they're moneymakers. They've released DVDs of, like, special... Like, she has this one character, I guess, called Tilly. Yeah. And yeah, they have had, like, Tilly. the Tilly Christmas special on DVD. And mm-hmm. that was... So, I mean, apparently they're big deals. But at this point, I feel like if she doesn't get off SNL soon, it's going to start hurting her career. Gilly. Yeah. Gilly. Gilly. There we go. She yeah. needs to join the uh, Thursday night comedy lineup on NBC. Yeah, she, she needs to st- write her own show, like because uh, I. Love, She's got to make love... that Amy Poehler, uh, right. uh, Tina Fey step. Yeah, where I, they, I totally they... could see that happening with her. Thirty Rock, I feel, is on its way out. Yeah, it's getting there. Yeah, it's. Whereas, it's whereas... I mean, Alec Baldwin's leaving, so they can yeah. only do like one season without him. I have to imagine. And, and Parks and Recreation's on its way up. It just keeps yeah, getting that, better. It's... And uh, Community, I hope makes to four seasons because that's my favorite. It, it is. I hope so. Oh, well, it's third season, right? It's, it's it did every, get picked yeah, up for a okay, third season, good. and but uh, again, it's a show about a college, so mm-hmm. I think going more than four seasons might be strange. But I, I wouldn't complain about more than that. Right. But Felicity only went for four seasons, so <laughs> I didn't care I, about Felicity. I think in grad I think school. thirty thirty rocks probably going to go like news radio, where once Phil Hartman, Phil Hartman didn't leave the show; he left the <laughs> earth. But... <laughs> News radio, yeah, yeah. He yeah, was replaced by John. I, Lovitz. I've been watching that recently. And Andy Dick can't stop talking about how John Lovitz told uh, Andy Dick on the set of the first day of News Radio when he replaced Phil Hartman. The first words were, "You killed Phil Hartman." Yeah, you just can't stop talking about that. Well, so that's I keep pretty traumatic. That. Yeah, uh, I, but uh, yeah, but sorry. anyway, so then they'll try to replace Alec Baldwin with, uh, I guess, John Another Lovitz. Baldwin? <laughs> yeah, another Baldwin. Stephen Baldwin, <laughs> <laughs> fresh off Biodome. And William Baldwin from Fair Game. It'd be great if they doubled up. <laughs> Listen, we're not going to get Alec, but we get Steven and William. That'd be good. <laughs> um, so she needs to, because she, she has like the reverse Chris Rock, or Chris Rock, whenever he's doing his HBO specials, hilarious. Whenever he's doing, um, whenever he, like when he had the Chris Rock show on HBO, actually, I just got that for Jim for his birthday. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I just you know if you want to send email, if you want to send us emails thanking me for giving Jim Chris Rock show for his birthday I wouldn't I wouldn't dislike it um, every time he's on TV he's great every time he's in movies he's horrible and Kristen Wiig has so true with Chris Rock and Kristen wow. Wiig has the reverse problem where even in like little roles like X like her in Extract where she played Jason Bateman's wife and uh, like her like her she's del- great and knocked up. Yeah, amazing and knocked up. Her delete, even her deleted scene in uh, "Forgetting Sarah Marshall," like she's so funny always. <laughs> yeah, and but on SNL, she never overplays it. But no, on SNL, that's, that, that's the crazy thing is they keep give they keep like it was it's Kristen Wiig is like if Chris Kattan was an amazing subtle comic actor, but they kept <laughs> making him do Mango and Mister Peepers, 
and be and he'd be like, no, listen, I want to I, I want to do something more subtle and more, and like he kept doing these brilliant movies, but then they just kept right. like doing Mr. Peepers. I mean, Chris Kattan is horrible all the way around. They gave Chris Kattan a movie, and he was horrible. He did his Chris Kattan thing. But Kristen Wiig is being Chris Kattan on TV, but then on movies, she's being uh, Tim Meadows. <laughs> I love Tim Meadows. So. I do, too. She's great. and But I, I find like a lot of people hate her. What do you th- Tony, do you like? Uh, no, I personally like her, and uh, I know a lot of people who don't. Like, I've been watching... SNL or like extract I saw and I I you know I could go either way about her performance in that but I think it's oh, yeah. more the character that you just have trouble mm-hmm. with but uh I found people who just hate like hate her no matter what she does yeah and I and I think it's just because all of her characters are so unidimensional on SNL and they right. just keep They're the, doing it over all, and over yeah. and over again until they beat it to death but I mean and there are people who can people who uh, who can thrive on SNL who are great and who are like Bill Hader he's funny on SNL yeah. and he's funny in movies um Bill Hader I feel is I don't want to make too quick cl- to claim anything but I think he's sort of like Phil Hartman to me where he's just right. he can do pretty much anything and make it better I think Jason Sudeikis could get to that point where I haven't could... seen really anything that made me that I've uh... liked him in I liked him in Going the Distance, but I mean, oh, it's, I a minor, it's a minor role, but he's still really fun. Anyway, so that, that's, that's what I wanted to say about Bridesmaids. If Obviously, I mean, all the reviews have been amazing. So Yeah, you, I haven't talked about the director, Mr. Paul Feig, who created Feeks, Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. the director, so. And didn't, did he direct anything else? He wrote Unaccompanied Minors. I think he directed a few, <laughs> he directed a few episodes of Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared. Oh, you know, yeah, he's, he's oh, definitely and, and episode the office, Ar- Arrest, and oh, Arrested yeah, Development. Oh, yeah, Office Arrested Development, yeah. Um, I was thinking movies, though. Had a brief cameo oh, you appearance know in Knocked Up. As I'm thinking the guy of Jake. That... I think I'm thinking of Jake Caston. He Kasten. did direct Uncompanied, Unaccompanied Minors. Who directed the TV set? Do you remember that movie? Did yeah, you that was that uh, Jake Kasdan. Yeah, Jake Kasdan. That's what I'm thinking. Who of. I think has only gotten one good movie, wow. the f- Zero Effect. Fucking amazing movie that nobody's seen. I with, think the TV. Bill I think the TV set. I don't think TV set is great. I don't think it's Zero Effect good, but I think TV set is good. Yeah, Zero Effect's awesome. <laughs> I really do love Zero Effect. Anyway, Tony. Uh, yeah. What yeah. you watched this week, Tony? Or oh, all right. Recently. Well, I mean, I don't think. Yeah, you, recently. Did you do the one movie that you did like? Was that Bridesmaids? That was Bridesmaids. Okay, yeah. I love Bridesmaids. All right. Uh, I actually watched a lot of movies recently. Uh, one that I'm definitely going to talk about, and then just a few others that I want to mention that blew my mind that I might have seen before. I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. which I saw in high school before I was into movies, and it's amazing. It that's is. one of the yeah. That's one of those movies yeah. that you don't like. It's it just is so engaging, and Jack Nicholson's performance is so good. Mm-hmm. Is that every time you see it. Like first time you see it, you're just blown away the performance, and then you watch it again. You're like, "Oh no, this is like really good." Yeah. And you keep watching yeah. it, and you keep realizing how much better it is. Than yeah, you thought. that was good. I saw Sid and Nancy with Gary Oldman. Oh, I and really. Gary to... Oldman was amazing. Yes, like, he was how fantastic. Is that? It's That's good. The uh, it. That's the reason to see yeah, it. Yeah, Nancy's Gary Na- Nancy didn't do too good of a job. No, but uh, no. everyone else is really good. The movie's really good. From the director uh, of Repo Man, if I'm not mistaken. It takes some artistic liberties with the story. not Well, not with factual things, but it does, you know, some scenes that, you know, are just there for artistic value right. and it mm-hmm. works out. And then that, is, that movie has one of my favorite trailers of all time. If you want to look yes. up the trailer to Sid and Nancy, it's him performing it's My Way. And yeah. It's, oh, it's a great trailer. Anyway. And then I saw The Room, 
in yes. theaters last night. Yes. And, uh, I mean, the room is the room. You can't really go further than that. It's it is funny one- because it's so weird and strange and so many it weird is, choices yeah. are made and it's not great and I, all that I, I, do, I think it is i think dude. it is i think it is the best i mean i haven't seen all of the great bad movies but i think it is the best of them because it fails inside it's not like plan nine from outer space where it's like oh my god all the acting is wooden and the story makes no sense and there are cardboard uh gravestones that fall over it's it's like every choice is wrong in a direction you would not expect. Yeah. And every step of the way, you're constantly being bombarded with things that you just don't understand why anyone <laughs> would think it's... It wasn't they were trying something mm-hmm. and they failed. It's that they succeeded in doing this thing that you don't know why they would even attempt. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and guys then, tossing football in tuxedos. And there's just a lot of stuff about it. Like, uh, like two of the actors in the movie, I think, don't do a terrible job. The uh, drug dealer who's in <laughs> about two minutes. He's not yep. bad. He no. he actually he was a. I I believed he was a drug dealer. I believe he wanted <laughs> mm-hmm. to kill Denny. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Mark. I don't. I don't take offense to. I I think Mark I don't is take pretty issue bad. Yeah. with yeah. him too much. But uh, it's it's weird because you know you see it on Adult Swim on April Fool's Day. Yeah, and they you know do their whole black bar thing with the uh, sex scenes. And uh, which, which can be funny, but I was listening to a, to a podcast, my brother, my brother and me, and one of the questions they asked, uh, it's a, it's an advice show, and one of the questions asked is, how do I get my girlfriend to watch The Room? And they said the key thing when you're introducing people to The Room is reassuring them that is not a porno. Yeah. Because <laughs> the first three minutes, there's like this porn, this horrible sex scene. With the slow jam. That was probably... Music. That might have been my favorite moment. The uh, just because it was the first "what the fuck" moment of the movie is when you see his ass and there's something wrong with it. Like he took like no, shrapnel like, or his, something. His, there's like a chunk missing. Or his skin is like so leathery and yeah. plastic yeah. looking. And there's, and there's like an indentation or something. Like the first time you see that, everyone was like, "Oh, it was is great." Mm-hmm. But, Speaking of which, uh, I think um, it, I'm sorry. Do you have more to? Oh yeah, I was gonna just say that. Uh, uh, seeing it live is definitely one thing. Yeah, that's what I was gonna. They've uh, people have stepped it up a notch. Like, <laughs> I the first time I ever saw it was live at uh, the same venue that I went to the music it, box. This in has Chicago. been going on at least in L.A. for at least like five years. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. it started to branch out, and uh, he's made appearances at at the music box. Yeah, he, it's been going on at, for Chicago for about a year now, though. And uh, just people have gotten to the point where uh maybe they know it so well or it's just become so many traditions have been built up around the movie where it's like i would say you have to see it once before you go see it in theaters yeah just mm-hmm. because they do the first time i saw it you know they did the spoons yeah. thing they did the football yeah they you know they would scream out stuff at random points but you could yeah. still enjoy 90 95 of the movie yeah. now it's like half the time People are yelling, that's screaming. Like, like, it's turned was. into Rocky Horror. Yeah, yeah and then that's my experience. A lot of call and response stuff with lines in the movie. Like, line here, the crowd says something. Line there, crowd that says was, something back. That was, I love, okay, I love when people respond to movies. Um, my favorite, I think one of my favorite theater experiences ever was when I saw Grindhouse. Because um, I saw it in, uh, it's in, and it was, people didn't know what it was. 
and it wasn't like a it wasn't like a uh, movie crowd where it's like oh yeah latest Tarantino movie this is so interesting that he's doing a it was people who were like yeah I want to see a stripper with a machine gun leg and and like there are people who left after De- uh, Planet Terror because they didn't realize <laughs> that it was a double feature um, yeah there were people who like people who left because they were so disgusted and there were people yelling at the screen like what the fuck you know I love organic responses. When I saw the room, I hated it because it felt so scripted. It felt like they weren't yeah. reacting to a movie. They were performing with it. Yeah, yeah. And I understand that's part of the appeal. That's the Rocky Horror aspect. People love performing with the movie. But it's it's really hard to enjoy. Uh, th- yeah. there, there were a few things that I think heightened uh, – that were heightened by the overreaction. Right. Uh, like there's this one scene in which – Lisa's talking to her mother, who was stricken with breast cancer. Yeah. <laughs> very, in a very, very strange reveal, but uh, she's talking, and it's later on in the film. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> and uh, her neck just keeps bulging out at these weird moments. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And they, they're just like these screams from the crowd, and I didn't know what they were doing at first, but then you realize, yeah. and it's kind of fun to make that discovery and add another response to the movie but you know it's still yeah i been bumped up a notch yeah i i mean obviously yeah i I could see that i don't fault anyone for for loving it or rocky horror or anything like that but yeah it wasn't it wasn't quite my cup of tea where every single line like it seemed like people were trying to impress each other at some point where it was like well that's what it is it's Become it becomes like a pissing contest with like oh yeah. who can call who can Lisa call because a you're yeah because you're a woman time. every every line was followed by because you're a woman like everything she said and yep. it was like whether or not it was valid or and it was and it just felt like all right enough and some lines I was looking forward to because I knew it were shouted over and like I missed some things the last time I saw it because well, of that because of the over participation of the crowd. Yeah. One of the things I did like about it that wasn't there last time is that uh, there was like an almost sitcom audience like applause whenever <laughs> a character that people liked would come on. Screen. Oh yeah, yeah, I love that. That happens sometimes at the uh, the Music Box Massacre, the twenty four hour horror film festival. Um, when people there are like some genre actors, like anytime John Saxon is on screen, people go yes. crazy. Anytime, uh, like there are some actors. Uh, who just their appearance gets such a great response and applause when their name comes up or when they appear on screen. I love that. That that's fun. Um, <laughs> I and here's the thing. I think unlike Rocky Horror, I think Rocky Horror, the spectacle of Rocky Horror is the fan base. It is not the movie. The movie itself is not so crazy that it. I don't. I don't think the movie's bad. Um, I think it's yeah. enjoyable, but. I think The Room really is spectacular and a movie that just should not exist and is so fascinating and hilarious. Um, So I really do think that you should not feel discouraged from seeing this, even with an audience. Just Yeah, I mean, it's got entertainment value to it. It's not just, you know, it's so bad it's good. It's just there's, there's things about it that you're just shocked by no, yeah, it it's it's not. Yeah, it's and not a. I when I saw Troll Two, it was the same thing. Troll Two has a little. I think even though tr- I think Troll Two doesn't even have as much of it because I think Troll Two a lot of it is it just how bad plot, the acting it takes is. Plot too seriously, and yeah. um, and then and then at the end it sort of betrays it sort of betrays the serious tone in the beginning and right. sort of tries to become a comedy. And it, 
I think the room is something just so bizarre and unique that a lot of it has to do with him as as a person because oh see, my god yeah. that's true troll does not have that and cult like, of personality what does he really like take his persona that serious you know like he's so in character in andy kaufman kind of surreal way or, or i mean who, like, like uh, i want someone actor. from the new yorker or new york times or someone to discover who the hell he is and where he came from yeah. and what that accent is get fucking what fbi fuck accent that? Um, professionals and it's Q and A's are so weird. It's like somebody would ask something like, "Well, why tuxedos?" And be like, "Because I love life." It's just like just <laughs> the most random responses that don't make that don't answer any question. Like, like because he's I love America. I love you. He's responding to things that are like being asked in a parallel dimension. Yeah, like he that's what is I'm at, thinking. He is like at a right angle with reality. Um, and it's and that is what the room feels like. It feels like it's something from another dimension that has. He's never watched any movies before. Yeah, um, it's fascinating. Everyone should see the room, and I think seeing it in the crowd is fun. But it gives I, a lot of energy to yeah, the whole. I you definitely should not watch it alone. Uh, I think the best way to see it is to see it with a couple of, with a bunch of friends at your house. Uh, a couple who haven't seen it, some who have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that might be the best first way. Um, I think the spectacle of the 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 live the show it would be like a midnight show would be fun too, but I don't think that's necessarily um, the best way to origin- experience it originally, as, yeah. as as you said. Mm-hmm. Or you can watch it on a first date, like I did. <laughs> <laughs> did you know I watched Annie Hall on a first date? That's that's that's, that's uh, just an amazing that's an transition. That's an interesting. Choice. That is that is the. I was like, she's like, well, I want to watch a movie, and like, what movie? And I'm like, oh, I know. Let's watch my favorite movie. Segway. No, yeah. Speaking of <laughs> speaking of Annie Hall, let's talk about this episode's director, Mr. Woody Allen. 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 Hey. The director of Allison Radio Jays. If you think he's just a dirty old man, you can go fuck yourself. Cause he made a lot of films, masterpieces of class. Podcast. So let's talk about this New York Jew on Directors Club Podcast. Podcast! Directors Club! Podcast! Directors Club! I like my women for all like After the phenomenal success of Annie Hall, Woody Allen had become one of America's most respected filmmakers. In 1979, he released what is generally accepted as his second great masterpiece, Manhattan, a poignant tribute to the city that Allen loves so dearly. Um, In hindsight, the maudlin tone of interiors, which was the film before this one, might have been too overwhelming for even the most devoted of Allen's work, and it inevitably led to a marriage of his two previous films resulting in Manhattan. Which is uh, yet another existential, introspective look into the fragility of relationships, but like I said, is also a beautiful love letter to the city of New York itself, with an accompanying soundtrack of Gershwin songs and Gordon Willis's shimmering black-and-white cinematography. Manhattan once again deals with familiar themes, including the internal crisis his characters face surrounding fidelity, as the lead character Isaac juggles between two females, including his counterpart, Mary, played once again by Diane Keaton, as well as 17-year-old Tracy, played by Mariel Hemingway. Celebrating the romance behind Alan's love of intellectualism and discussions about the importance of artistic expression, 
Alan works on his strengths so effortlessly that it cemented his style without veering off too much into absurdist comedies or the ultra-seriousness that permeated something like Interiors. Right. And Manhattan is right up there with some of his best work. Oh, absolutely. It's um, great. I just think (laughs) it's important to add that about 15, maybe 16 years after uh, Manhattan comes out, he calls Mariel Hemingway a cunt in one of his films. <laughs> does and like Whoa. does she play? A she plays a she plays a character. Yeah. Oh, okay. In uh, deconstructing Harry, she is a. Oh, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, she's a c word. I, uh, I should have. I should have known he's deconstructing Harry. That had to be the only movie where he calls someone a cunt. And he says fuck a lot. And I was yeah. I was very caught off guard. That's by a that. very yeah, strange movie. Um, it is a very strange movie. But I, I, I thought you were saying like, like it. I thought you were saying like oh, no, he did a, like, he did, like the, a throwaway Family Guy gag where he's like you're, you're a cunt like Mariel Hemingway. <laughs> That was a great Peter imitation. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, I didn't. Um, I'm not. A, I'm not a big fan of interiors. Uh, it feels like he. He said he. You're said a big when fan of exteriors, it, though. Yeah, well, I, I'm an outdoorsman. You know, camping. <laughs> uh, yeah, he said he like consciously uh, like didn't wanted to make a movie with no jokes in it, and it, right. it totally shows that he's like really trying. Um, and I think movies like this sort of show he's at his best when he's doing what comes naturally. Um, and every every everything about this movie just is Woody Allen, and especially the uh, cinematography and how much he loves New York. Um, I think one thing that about Woody Allen that sort of is not recognized as much as his uh, writing ability is he has a very distinctive style. It's not right. It's not like Sam Raimi or Scorsese where it's really over the top, but um, he he has a very you know. He he shoots to emphasize the city over over like the individual. So he'll he'll do a lot of long shots across the street. That's sort of the mm-hmm. classic. I always consider the classic uh, Woody Allen. I always feel at home whenever I watch a Woody Allen movie. And then yeah. there's a shot of two people having a conversation as one is running and they're across the street. And it's and uh, and he uh, and no, he no, definitely uh, focused on like the conversation pieces within the film because of the uh, wider than normal aspect ratio. Oh yeah, called, mm-hmm. yeah. It's uh, it's not one point eight five one like widescreen normally right. is. It's like two point three to one called cinemascope. Right, and I so mean it's a you, lot longer and yeah. you can fit a lot more. Absolutely, and you look back, you'll see. Uh, I mean, he he mostly plays the cinematography for comedy, like when he's aping uh, Bergman and something like Love and Death. But mm-hmm. even something like Annie Hall, it is really well shot and uh, well made. Yeah, and definitely. I think Manhattan, despite the fact that it was not nominated for Best Cinematography, which is insane because because uh, Kramer versus Kramer was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is kind of funny to me. That horrible movie with Michael Richards. Oh my god! Were there <laughs> that, two that was the one. Yeah, that was the one where there was the cra- two twin Kramers split at birth, <laughs> yep. and then they had. Uh, am I thinking of uh, Double Impact? <laughs> oh god! <laughs> I get Jean Claude Van Damme and Michael Richards mixed up all know, the time. Understandable. <laughs> um, no, but I think this is sort of the movie where people first took note of him as a filmmaker. I think. Well, I guess Annie Hall. Yeah. That's there's a lot more technique stuff, but well, that one best picture. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they took note of him as filmmaker there, but this is sort of cemented that was not a fluke. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, again, Interiors feels like it was trying too hard to prove himself when he didn't need to. He already won the best picture. Um, But, and, uh, you know, there's something I think that Manhattan shows off really well that I think Woody Allen does better than anyone else. And I think I mentioned this earlier in a uh, 
in, during the Almodovar podcast. But I think Woody Allen, better than anyone else, um, writes jokes that express something about the characters saying them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not just one-liners. They're not just references. They're not... I mean, he does one-liners yes, really well. Um, in the Groucho Marx but style. what Isaac is saying, like, it, lo- it looks like... I mean, it doesn't advance the plot, like, say, the dinner scene where he... Uh, that's where he, is that where he first runs into uh, Diane Keaton, or is she first run to her at the museum? museum. The art museum. Okay, yeah. well, the second time he runs into her at the sort of the uh, gala event. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he's talking, you know, and there's all the intellectuals talking about the neo-Nazi rally. And, and so I read, a, I read a piece in The New Yorker. It was – and he goes, no, he goes, he goes, yeah, I, we should all get together, you know, bricks and bats and really show them. And it's like yeah, I read Swam a piece. To him. Yeah, really explain it to him. <laughs> I read a piece about that in the New Yorker. It was devastating. Well, piece in the New Yorker are one thing, but bricks and bats really get to the heart of the matter. <laughs> and it's and it's sort of this. Uh, I mean, he is intellectual. He he likes to sort of play off in interviews and stuff that he isn't, but he's very intelligent and and he's interested in higher arts and opera and right. things like that and all the things that you would make you call someone an intellectual. But uh, he doesn't feel at home with them, and I think that's sort of. That he's just he's not happy. He's uh he's never comfortable with people. Mm-hmm. Like even in you know, when he you know, there's this like the scene in Annie Hall, he's outside the movie theater and the two mooks come up and they're like, Ah, didn't I see you on TV? <laughs> that guy actually shows up later in uh, Purple Rose of Cairo. Yeah, he does. You're right. Um but uh which we'll talk about later. But like he, he doesn't identify with them and he doesn't identify with the intellectuals and he's just sort of stuck in the middle. Um and he's not afraid to put like intensely self-critical things about himself or his character into the mouths of the people around him. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I think. And that was actually the first thing um, about Manhattan. The first time I saw it, I did not like it very much. And it was because um, I'm used to Woody Allen movies where Woody Allen is the main character and he's the protagonist, which of course he is here, but he's also the moral center and he's likable. And I mean, I, my first Woody Allen movie I really saw was Annie Hall, and that was sort of a movie about him where you follow him and he grows, and at the end he's learned something. Yeah. Um, and you don't really – I mean, you're supposed to connect with the character. And I think in this you're supposed uh, – he looks at Isaac a lot more objectively. Right. Um, obviously not to say he didn't identify with him, um, but I think I think part of the point of Isaac isn't that, oh, he's endearing and he's funny. Part of the point of Isaac is – that he's miserable and complains all the time and he's kind of childish and And he points out all the foibles and flaws that he has. Yeah. And, and I think mistakes. And that was actually, I didn't quite get that the first time. And I was like, Oh God, he's such an unlikable character. I don't know why. Cause I was looking at it like a comedy. Um, and I think sort of the main thrust of Manhattan, um, sort of to go back to the fact that he doesn't fit in is people progressing and regressing. And it's, and I think, he his relationship with Tracy, the seventeen year old, is him regressing. He, it's he had a bad marriage where he, he was married to uh, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep yeah. uh, um, became a lesbian, and who left him for a woman, and he right. tried to run over her, her girlfriend <laughs> with a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's going to something easy, um, which is Tracy, which is where the movie starts off, and then he meets someone who really challenges him, who he doesn't get along with at first. But who he's better suited for because he right. can't because they, they engage him, which is Mary. Yeah, and he's torn between these two things: should he be regressing or progressing? And I think 
one of the things about this sort of familiar existential crisis for a lot of guys, I think. And I think, (laughs) and I think that's something that links all of the characters um, in the movie is: are they progressing or are they regressing? Like um, his his friend who used Mm -hmm. who is having an affair with Mary. Yeah, Yale. um, Says, "I can't be doing this. I'm married. There's no future here." Right. He decides to progress, but then later he decides no. He he liked the the adventure and the excitement of. Mary and he regresses to her, and Mary regresses to him, and it's yeah, and it's all about this sort of push and pull um, about growing up, and uh, I mean not growing up in a way uh, like a, like a have, Judd Apatow movie where but they it's, never have certainty about what's going to make them happy. No, um, but there's search; it's the constant search, and I think that's sort of and it's I think never, it's never the desti- the journey is the destination for and, these characters yeah, because they but, never really know where they're going to wind and up. This and something why. I think something that links the and, two movies that yeah. we saw. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. That's okay. Um, Something these two movies saw is these are really sort of big ideas, and but because he grounds them so emotionally and so personally, they never feel intellectualized. He never feels like, okay, now this is the part where Woody Allen's making a statement on how modern man is blah, and this is the part you you just it's everything he says he says by telling this compelling story, Mm -hmm. Um, and but he does. At the same time, he recognizes what he's saying um, by having these conversations with between Isaac and Mary take place in these grand things where they're eclipsed by they're in a, one of the best uh, sort of I love I love when movies uh, have little plot uh, like small plot points that exist only so they can have like a cool shot or like I, one of the example I always use is um, Carno the movie Carnival of Souls the lead character is an organ player. And that's basically so there can be organ, creepy organ music throughout the whole thing. <laughs> like her job has nothing to do with anything yeah. except there's creepy organ music throughout the whole thing. And it's because, oh, it's in her head because she's an organ player. And I think when their walk through the park gets interrupted by the thunderstorm and they have to duck inside of a planetarium and continue these conversations in front of Jupiter. Yeah, yeah. And like like the seventh seal or something where it's these yeah. – and it's I, – I, I love that um, – and again, cinematography cannot be stated enough how beautiful it is. I actually was lucky enough. I saw this on the big screen uh, several months ago, I believe, like back in March or so. Um, I wish I could have gone. But yeah, yeah that's um, and it it is amazing. It is so beautiful. Um, and but again, it's not just showing off. Uh, he tells stories and that's what he's interested. He's interested in characters and stories and he's really invested in them. And, uh, and I think it's funny that he doesn't like the movie. Uh, yeah. That what, is bizarre. What were, <laughs> what were you trying to say about the, uh, planetarium and the set there? Oh, well it's just, it's like, obviously the only reason they're in the planetarium is so he can get these great shots of them walking in front of planets because oh, I, I, I don't think, I don't think that though. I think it's there for a little, bigger reason than that but What's that? uh well uh like the seat the shot with the bridge too mm-hmm. where they're so small in the frame of the picture yeah and the ending that he talks about where it's about these uh you know he's writing a book about new yorkers who create all these neurotic problems right. for themselves to escape the unanswerable things about the universe i think those shots are there to make all their problems oh, look silly and abso- small compared to the, the grand, grand scheme. scheme. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, abs- absolutely. And um but that what I'm saying what I'm saying is I mean I'm not saying that it hadn't he had no thematic reason to right, yeah, the planetarium. I, I, sure. right. I mean 
I mean, there was no plot reason to put it in a planetarium. Oh, right. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I'm sorry. But yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And the, that's still one of probably the greatest thing he's ever done. Like if you had to pick one sequence is the opening where it's just shot after shot of, of Manhattan and people moving around and markets and neon lights and uh, and Gershwin playing. And uh, I mean, Woody, yeah. Woody Allen, uh, he makes very different movies, but he never really changes the music. <laughs> in any of them mm-hmm. and sometimes it works um and sometimes it doesn't work as well but this is like perfect you know that this is exactly like it's so personal and heartfelt this is exactly what he hears when he walks around manhattan yeah. he hears you know the blue not blue danube uh what's the gershwin tune rhapsody in blue. Rhapsody, rhapsody in blue, in blue. yeah and even myself when i was in new york i was hearing the same song oh yeah well that's the thing this movie affects me very personally in that like I had some amazing experiences in New York city myself and just, just the element of how he embraces almost like romantic uh, context behind conversation, just the art of conversations between people, whether you've just met them for the first time and you're sort of gauging, how am I going to engage with this person? And you know, I don't know how many times where I've been in situations where I'm like, you know, I didn't really like that thing at all. And they're like, what? You didn't really like that thing? Oh, it's it's so like great. so painful because it's so true. <laughs> I mean, I hate using that cliche, but it's, at the same time, it's there are moments in this movie where I'm like, yep, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. You and, like the you, know. uh, you like the cube? Yeah. <laughs> 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 <sighs> Yeah, it's so good. Um, and Diane Keaton And is... just like his little references, too, for people who absolutely adore movies, even just something like, well, that's an interesting group of friends you have there. Yeah, like being in the cast of a Fellini movie. I mean, he does that all the time, but there's just something about the freshness of this when it first came out. I assumed, like, you know, this was not like anything had come out. And he's acknowledged that, yeah, I, I rip off this filmmaker and that filmmaker and that film, but he adds his own stamp to it Always. every time. And I think that's, I think, I think the ultimate testament to the fact that he adds his own stamp is that he's not recognized like among people like Tarantino right. or De Palma are people who reference movies. Like he's not often mentioned among them. People will go, Oh, he's that guy who makes the movies about the rich people in New York. Like the neurotic Jew, right? The neurotic <laughs> Jews in New York. Um, but, but I mean, like I, I, you know, a film critic friend of mine actively dislikes pretty much the majority of his filmography because mm-hmm. he he's just too derivative. Like, if I why would I watch a Woody Allen movie when I could watch Bergman or Fellini or something? Well, it's, like eight it's and a half. It's not the same. I mean, if you want to if you want to use that argument with interiors, I think that's fair. And if I think there are a few um, sort of stylistic things he tries, um, it's a few movies he's done. We'll get into later that. Right. I don't think I don't think he's successful, but I think in the again the other thing is it never like everything he does feels like it's coming from him, and it feels like it's he's not intellectualizing it and he's not overthinking it. Like the reason he goes, oh, they're very interesting people, like cast of a Fellini film. He's not trying to get the uh, the art film fans in the audience to laugh, like Kevin Smith would. Yeah, yeah, he's Star not, Wars references. Right, right. He's not that. It's, <laughs> he's not referencing things because oh, Fellini was really big at that time. Right. Like he was referencing Fellini because that's what that's his. Yeah. Like, and that's why and that's why he makes movies in the you know in the modern era, and people are still talking about the Marx Brothers, you know, because <laughs> because to him, of course, everyone grew up watching the Marx Brothers. That's what I did. Yeah. 
Um, it's Woody Allen's universe. Right. Uh, and he crafts it so confidently and and I don't know. I mean like everything about the major the majority of his movies really just appeals to my sensibilities. So. Yeah, and I yeah, which is why I don't think you could say that he's too derivative um in that way, but and the other thing I love about um about this movie is um I mean, besides just how funny it is, is again, like what you were saying about the conversations, um, Woody Allen does some amazing things with dialogue, um, obviously in a different way than, you know, someone like Quentin Tarantino, who just can craft an amazing phrase or something like that. But he does this very subtle thing. And that's why he always, you know, shoots these conversations in apartments where people are running in and out of rooms. And Mm -hmm. it's always done in one shot, you know, with the camera just panning back and forth from room to room and people in the distance and, you know, caged in, in the door frame and stuff and the people in the foreground, because there's an amazing shot, by the way, of, of Mary, when Mariel Hemingway is reading um, early on in the movie, right after their first dinner yeah, and she's reading and there's just a nightlight. Um, and it's just a huge wide shot wide of his shot, apartment, the whole room. And yeah, and she's in a tiny corner lit by light. Everything is just in shadow. And then there's a doorway and it's like, Again, it's her being dwarfed, but she's not dwarfed by something like New York. She's dwarfed by his beauty. Yes. She worships him the same way he worships New York. Um, where his this like her his little apartment is like this palace of adults and this big thing <laughs> that she wants to be. And the ironic thing, of course, is once he tries to pro- progress past her with uh, Mary, and she rejects him. When he runs back to her, she's already progressed. Yeah. And there's a there's an amazing scene where um, there's an amazing scene where at the at the very end of the movie where he's you know trying to fight and reason with her to get her to stay and not leave for school in England and it's and you get the feeling he's not actually fighting with her he's like fighting with himself like I don't want to go back to well, not that's, knowing that's totally representing the very last shot of his face just like when she says you got to have a little faith in people and he can't completely smile yeah like just that the look on his face says volumes about woody allen's confidence and sort of neuroses and like i think how that's... it's always going to plague him like he does have a little optimism but not too much yeah um and you I... know it's like he wants to be that way but I don't... Can't, yeah, he... can't absolutely and he's not but and the thing he has faith in i mean uh it's it's funny to try to talk about his sort of beliefs and like view of the world. Cause I just, I grew up watching his movies and sort of my own opinions were basically formed around his. So a more pragmatic approach to yes, love. Absolutely. Pragmatic and just sort of atheist and existentialist. And just, there's no point to any of this, but there are things worth enjoying. Um, like that is totally it's not completely hopeless. I that, that's, that's totally. And there is, there is love and it ends and it does end though. And it's not perfect and it hurts a lot, but it's worth it. Like all of these things are just things I accept as truth. So it's kind of hard for me to discuss them as if, oh, they're just his view set. Cause I, I just happen to think they're all correct. Yeah. Right. But, um, uh, but what he finds, what he finds faith in is not people. Uh, what he finds faith in is, and I think this the is fully explored in, <laughs> this is more explored in our next movie. Right. He finds faith in the things people have made and yes. the things, he finds faith the in the city. things that people share and he engage finds, with, interact with. Which is, I think the most powerful scene in the movie is him when he's despondent and he's trying to list the reasons life are worth living because um, yep. he's feeling suicidal. That tape recorder moment is just 
heartbreaking and, and it what is what leads up to it's and wonderful. that and he has and he has said i think that that is his just that was his personal list when he wrote it um yeah and there were people because and he just lists i believe he lists the dodgers or the yankees or mets or whatever he lists groucho marx yeah um frank sinatra other i can't i i, I can uh hold on let me pull up the because it is an amazing list and it's and people actually were um uh, people were upset because he didn't because he has a son in the movie and he didn't list his son. Mm-hmm. And Woody Allen said, "Well, it just never occurred to me because <laughs> I because he didn't have a son at that point. I don't believe." Well, I guess it yeah. kind of became true for him though, as his uh, life would turn out. I guess. I yeah, that's okay. Here it is. It goes. Why is life worth living? That's a very cool question. Um, or something, certain things that make it worthwhile, like what? Okay, um, for me, uh, I would say... I don't know why they put all the ums and uhs in this <laughs> memorable quote section of IMDb. Please don't do that. Uh, Groucho Marx, Willie Mays, the second movement of the Jupiter Symphony, Louis Armstrong, recording of Potato Head Blues, Swedish movies, naturally, Sentimental Education <laughs> by Flaubert, Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, Those Incredible Apples and Pears by Cezanne, uh, The Crabs at Sam Woes. Uh, and then he at the end, he lists yes. Tracy's face. Um, and the music swells. Yeah, and the music he swells. Has a, but an epiphany. It doesn't. <laughs> and he doesn't say it out loud. He just you just know it from yeah. his expression. And he and he runs, and there's this, that great long shot of him running down the street. Um, again, he knows how to tell a story with the camera, and just because like a lot of his movies consist of conversations that are done in one shot, people Dialogue sort of heavy. Yeah, people don't consider him a very like you know very concerned with style, mm-hmm. but. You watch this movie and you'll just you're just amazed at some of the things he does and how he tells the story and when he goes outside his comfort zone, like when he's running and like that shot yeah. where he's running down the uh, street. Um, and I think that sort of sums up Woody Allen in general is that uh, he's he can't be totally pessimistic. It's he everything all the evidence he finds in life, or at least the I would I wouldn't I I can't speak to Woody Allen personally, but the quintessential Woody Allen Allen character. Is like all the evidence he Which finds. Which became an archetype. Absolutely. In of itself. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Where everything he finds in life points towards everything is shit and nothing's working, but everything that is bigger than him, he says, it, it can't all be bad because look right. at this and look mm-hmm. at this. And also, I loved you. And that was, and like, he is, he's not, he's so pragmatic, but he is romantic. He really does believe in love. He, I think, again, it's hard for me to, speak to, about objectively Se- about separate the two yeah it's hard for me to speak objectively because this is when i say he feels i'm basically saying i feel he feels that he isn't romantic in the idea that he thinks like love can conquer conquer all things he doesn't think love it you know he's not big on love at first sight he's not uh but he like love redeems his characters right um and these those emotional connections sort of make sense in an irrational world and you can find it in the environment you live in, the city, the people you right. you choose to let into your weird little world, and the the various forms of art that you embrace. You know, and that's that's what I I and that's why we're going to do Purple Rose of Cairo next. That's yeah. what resonates with oh, me that's, so yeah, much. That's in fact, you want to get into uh, how? Please, let's do it. Do you have anything? I'm sorry. Do you well, have... uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I was sorry. just going to. Oh no, it's all right. I'm the guest. I have to. Wait my turn. <laughs> uh, you can jump we don't in. want it to be that way, though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just I jump was, 
I definitely agree with the ending and how it's about progressing and regressing, and I never looked at it that way. And now looking at it that way, it's very, uh, it just makes a lot of sense. But the way I kind of looked at it after watching it earlier today was that in order for him to make things work or to make love worth living for Tracy or whatever, that he would have to make that sacrifice or one of those sacrifices that he brought up at the beginning of the film and the dinner scene where, you know, what would you sacrifice to save a life? Or in this case, what would you sacrifice to not save oh, your right. own I life? Never, but yeah, I never connected those. Make love work for you. Oh. And hmm. maybe the sacrifice is six months because she says it's not a lot of time and he smirks, but... I mean, you can interpret it any number of ways, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to go off of within the movie. And I and I think and I think there is a lot. It can be interpreted a number of ways, and I think it means a number of things yeah. because it can go a different number of ways. There are a lot of things to think about. The idea of is this really what I want? Can mm-hmm. I wait six months? If this is what saved me, can can and, something this huge and powerful wait? Or am I only saying that because I'm so desperate that I'm grasping at things? Are we going to be the same? It's like it is uncertain to the character, and it is, and it's uncertain to us. Absolutely, there's never like a re- resounding yes or no. Well, you know? I think, I think, I think, uh, I think the other person, other director who does this really well is Spike Lee, where uh, he'll ask really good questions, but he's smart enough to know that he doesn't have the answer. Yeah, um, I think, like, I think the quintessential uh, sort of example of that would be like the ending of Do the Right Thing, uh, where it's. He's presented it's all of these ideas of and all is. of these, and you don't know who to sympathize, and you and you don't know exactly what's going on, and and then it's, but he does he doesn't tell you because he doesn't know because no one because these are unanswerable questions. Yeah, um, and I think that's sort of what makes him. Again, I, mean, I think this, we look to art in hopes of finding the answer, though. I think a lot of people want to, you know, and I, I'm definitely guilty of that to some degree where it's like you read a book or you see a movie and it really hits you on, you know, not just an intellectual level, but it speaks to you and you want to find you you want to find a piece of yourself in, in, in the art. Oh, absolutely. Or good ideas. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I became a pacifist after I saw children of men. Um, that's, that's a true story. I mean, it's not like I was scrapping every Saturday at the bar, but I realized <laughs> that violence is never the answer after I saw children of men. Um, I, 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 uh, um, but I think in this case, sometimes you, when you look at art, even if it doesn't give you the answer, I think realizing that it's okay that there isn't an answer is in itself something that can give you consolation. At least it's stirring yeah. up the questions. And it, and it, and it can feel even good just to know answers. someone else who is Matt, you know, someone who I love and respect like Woody Allen doesn't know. Right. So it's okay that I don't know. Right. Um, and it's I think comforting, that, and I think it? that yeah, and I think even though it isn't a happy ending, there is comfort to be found in something like that. Yeah, um, I think I think Purple Rose of Cairo is an even sort of better example of uh, this sort of not over intellectualizing things while still bringing up ideas and never answering any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should go into Purple Rose of Cairo now. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Uh, I just wanted to say one more thing that I'm not, and I'm not sure if this is true pretty sure it is but uh manhattan brings out one of the more prevalent themes in all of woody allen's later films which is like this relationship of mentoring between an older man and a younger woman. even even annie hall he takes that sort of relationship with annie 
um, where he's, I want to buy you this book about yeah, death yeah. instead of that cat book. That's yeah. <laughs> one of my yeah. favorite lines. That, that line, that line has defined more of my relationships. Than <laughs> 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 I want to no, buy you this, this book about death instead, theme of, that instead keeps of that coming cat up. book. Yeah, and the Manhattan kind of took it from mentoring or trying to sculpt something in the way you want it to, even though it's the same thing, it just took it to a different age gap, which I think brings more to the table. And did, and did people find it creepy then when for, when Manhattan first came out, as opposed to now, in you know, in hindsight, knowing what we know about his own personal life? I think, I think it was seen as a movie. I don't think it was seen so. as a... <laughs> I mean, if, say, if Judd Apatow made a movie about someone dating a 17-year-old, I wouldn't automatically assume that Judd Apatow... You know, right? Because because I've seen no history of that. Yeah. And at the time, they didn't see any history of that with Woody Allen. I think when husband and husbands and wives came out, they they couldn't really see anything in, as a movie it. anymore. Yeah, yeah. The husbands and wives really let a lot of that out. <laughs> yeah. I love husbands and wives. It's, no, it's really good. It yes, is. and that's that's definitely in my probably my top five. We're gonna after we uh, do Purple Rose of Cairo, we're gonna go through the entire filmography. All right, really quick. <laughs> I still can't get over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. I gotta speak to you. You mean me? Ah! Tom Baxter's come down off the screen and he's running around New Jersey. How can he come off the screen? It's impossible. It's never happened before in history. In New Jersey, anything can happen. Come away with me to Cairo. Cairo? But you just met each other. Love at first sight doesn't only happen just in the movies. You coming from a costume party? No, I'm just back from Cairo where I uh, searched in vain for the legendary Purple Rose. How about that? I wonder what it's like out there. Hey, what the hell kind of movie is this? Why don't you stop yapping? We've got problems of our own. Is that what I told you? I told you. In 1985, Woody Allen directed The Purple Rose of Cairo, and uh, that's all I wrote, I wrote down, because I think we're going to cover most of what the movie's about in the discussion. Yeah. Um, Fuck yeah. It's a very high-concept movie mm-hmm. um, about uh, a woman who, she lives through the Depression, and pretty much her sole joy in life is the escapism and joy she finds going to the movies. Mm-hmm. Um she she has a deadbeat husband who doesn't work. She's horrible at her job because as a waitress, because her mind's always on movies, and you know whenever she's hurt or in pain, she goes to the movies. And uh, I can't relate to this at all. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then one day, uh, her character from a movie she sees four times uh, notices that she's seen it four times now, and I think it's four times. I'm not the right number, right? Five. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then steps off the screen to be with her. Because he loves her. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, at first glance, not something you would expect Woody Allen to me because to do because the concept seems so romantic. Um, mm-hmm. It is not. It is not tethered by the kind of pragmatism, even the laws of physics. <laughs> it's not even <laughs> tied down by by reality. Um, yeah. It actually it almost reminds me of. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read his short stories. Um, um, but he, he does short stories and I don't know the correct term. So I, I call it a casual fantasy where mm. fantastic things happen and they're just accepted. I mean, they're yeah. accepted as fantastical, but they're also immediately accepted as this just, this did happen. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no period, uh, there's no period of, but this can't happen. How can this happen? What's the reason this happened? There's no. It's not last action hero. Don't the where, Hollywood producers do that a little bit though. What 
I mean, in Purple Rose? No, they talk about what they're going to do now that it has happened. Right. But they don't talk okay. about the logistics. Why it's happened. There's no, like, oh, was there a spell? Was there a magic? Yeah. There was, there's no last action here where the boy has, like, a magic ticket. Or, like, that, an Alice where it's like, oh, it's the potions or right. whatever, the... the herbs or whatever yeah it's it's just accepted as yeah. fact and dealt with and groundhog day phenomenon yeah and i i was i thought about um i mean we've talked about this on the podcast before that we both have our uh, our actress crushes um for jim a long time it was zoe deschanel i believe now it's carrie mulligan correct um for me it's Aaliyah shawkat um where you you fall in love with uh, them on screen and you love watching them and they and it brighten up your life and then the idea that they could love you back is it's it's always an unrequited love because they can't love you back because they're unattainable. And so it it deals with this sort of idea that is so brilliant uh, that like what happened if they loved you back? What is, what is it about them that you love? (laughs) Um, And then the idea of the actor um, who plays the character who steps off the screen. Yeah. I don't have the character names in front of me. That's when Woody Allen said that, he finally found what he was looking for within this story. Once he had the real actor show up. Yes. Because it's, it's like, it's, is it him that you love or is it the character? Yes. And there's, mm-hmm. and I would say one of the, my favorite things about um, purple rose of Cairo in general is it, it very casually brings up about a thousand different ideas, questions and themes yeah. about escapism about how we relate to movies, about how actors relate to their performances, about how art exists on its own, um, about this idea of you not owning a performance, about you, uh, like, they're the ones, they're like, they get all, the, the Hollywood stars get all the credit, but we're the ones who have to act it out every right. night. <laughs> it's this idea that, it's this idea that the reason they're loved is because they're able to do something again and again for people when in fact they only did it once in front of cameras. It wasn't even for an audience. And there's that disconnect that they feel, but that the audience yeah. doesn't feel um, that is never once, never once intellectualized at all. Mm-hmm. Never once starts talking about, there's never once a speech where um, Mia Farrow, what does this all mean? And- where Mia Farrow is talking about, well, I just love movies because well, the first time I realized I love was movies was when my mom died of tuberculosis and I went to go see the <laughs> Greta Garbo Greta Garbo picture and blah blah blah. You know, like yeah. there's nothing like that. It is there's nothing like uh where they have intellect where him and the character have intellectual discussions about what art is and it is it absolutely exists on its own terms. Um and uh <laughs> I just I fucking love it. I'm sorry, right. I've been talking a lot. Well, that's okay. No, no, no. Yeah. It just seems like a. It's the movie is kind of like a creation of somebody who obviously loves watching and making films, but also finds it very problematic in doing so. Like just in terms of, you know, he he obviously enjoys the process. He enjoys watching them. He he loves making them. But there's something. What be, what becomes of the art form once it's put out into the world and how other people perceive it? And like you brought up before we started recording, like half the audience will react one way that, and then the other half will react another way. That was that was one of my favorite things is once the movie is no longer the 
Right. And by the way, the movie within the movie, The Purple Rose of Cairo, is the worst kind of <laughs> adventure. <laughs> We're going on a safari. From Cairo to Manhattan. Can't wait to get to the Copacabana and drink some <laughs> champagne. And like it is the and this is the kind of movie that that thrived in the Great Depression yeah. for mm-hmm. good reason. Right. People go to the movies for escapism, and you don't need that any more than when everyone is out of work and everyone you know is starving. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that is why sort of Hollywood movies, they're not, they're not about fabulous people living fabulous lives, but they're pretty dumb and fantastical nowadays with superheroes mm-hmm. and stuff. Cause it's, it's all fantasy, you know, to, cause the, the, the economy isn't very good now, but I do love the idea that once it becomes, once it stops being a, like a very by numbers uh, celebration of wealth and becomes like an art, like a, like it becomes waiting for Godot. Half the audience is like, what is this? I want my money back. And the other half is like, oh no, I really like this. Yeah. <laughs> like, my husband is a student of the human character. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my I favorite love, lines. It's definitely one of my favorite lines. Um, human personalities. Are yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think where Woody Allen, I think Woody Allen is, where Mia Farrow is at the end of the movie, um, mm-hmm. where she, she still loves um, the movie ends with her watching. I can't. I wish I could remember the uh, Fred Astaire movie that it. That's she. I think it's either Top Hat. I think it might be Top Hat, but I might be wrong. But um, she's watching a Fred Astaire movie, and Fred Astaire is singing cheek to cheek, and this is after um, Tom, the the character who stepped off the screen. Um, has gone back into the screen because she said that she wanted to be with the actor. Right. And after the actor left, because he didn't really care about her, he just wanted to get, he just saw her as a way to get Tom back on the screen mm-hmm. and her leaving her husband and being without a job. Uh, and it's the great depression. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a da- It's a very low point. Um, but there's still like, she, the very last shot of the movie, she smiles because, there's Fred Astaire there, and he's singing, and I think that is, and that's. I, I always considered that could it be is, the summation of Woody Allen. It absolutely, and that's. I always consider it a happy ending because I feel a happy ending is where people are better off than when they were in the beginning of the movie. Right. Um. There, she realizes there's still an escape, but it's all. But she understands the role it plays in right. her life that's, and the limitations of it. And I think Woody Allen is able to acknowledge and love, you know, the art form of cinema, yeah. but also question why and i think that's and that's a you know sort of a philosophical inclination like to just not never never arrive at an answer but just keep asking questions but in a loving way and not just like not not just to do it or do it in like a cold detached way to where all you can do is intellectualize something i think he can stand back and actually love and enjoy something about about an art form i would say the central struggle in a lot of his best movies is I don't know why life is. I don't know why anything is. Life, yeah. Nothing has any meaning. And the only meaning I find is in these things that aren't my life. These, right. these other things that I escape in and that I love and that I I, I close my eyes and I fall into, uh, you know, Gershwin and mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra and all the things he listed in right. reasons why, where, why life is living on Manhattan. And a more obvious example from his later career would be Melinda and Melinda, where those questions are asked, 
you know, to the not to the audience, but through the characters, he they ask such literal, literal. That's actually, I I have to say, I have to consider that one of the movies I haven't seen because I I watched the first thirty minutes and hated it. So, yeah, it's 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 one it's one of his weaker films, but it, it it basically just recycles. Like, why do we like art, and how do we interpret it? And to literally, like, Wallace Shawn and the other guy are asking, yeah. well, is it funny, or is it tragic? And just the way they're doing that is kind of uh, obvious and sad. <laughs> because, like, he he's able to do that in Purple Rose of Cairo effortlessly, and in a way that doesn't feel pandering to the audience in terms of, like, how we're going to explore those ideas. So. Or is Melinda, Melinda, it's one or the other, mm-hmm. told yeah. side by side. And right, and then the conclusion is it's neither. <laughs> <laughs> and he just tells it's inconceivable. That's how he. Yeah, should. Wallace Shawn is in it. So. Right. It's oh, there you go. Um. Uh. But I'm sorry. It's um, okay. I threw you off track with Melinda. And Melinda. Uh, yeah. I, have, I, yeah. I think one of the more interesting ideas in uh, Purple Rose of Cairo is humanity and how Tom is almost asking if humanity can is a learned trait if we learn how to become human or dynamic because he has so mm-hmm. much about him that's written into his character that right. he just knows because it's part of him he doesn't when he goes to kiss her he, because in the movies the, it always fades to black yeah. yep. he doesn't know how to make love yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i think that's one of the reasons why uh she made the choice that she did because as perfect as he is you know, there's always going to be that area where he can't comprehend things. Like, the idea of God to him is the people that produced the film. Yeah, the writers. And just <laughs> just this whole thing where he's starting to wonder about it I, yeah. in that one scene. I like the idea that these fictional characters are also having existential crises. Where they're like, don't turn off the projector! Then we go in, capitalize, the dark! You don't know what it's like in the darkness to not exist. And just... uh Kind of what you were saying about how actors can put stuff into characters. Maybe all of that was intended. Maybe this exploring hat or the the explorer was the reason that he wanted to explore everything outside. Because I think he was the only character in the uh, movie within the movie, Purple Rose of Cairo, that started to wander off and want to see everything else. One of the brilliant things, and by the way, it it was originally Michael Keaton, and I cannot imagine Michael (laughs) Keaton in this role. Wow, that's crazy. Michael Keaton is way too like weird and sarcastic and quirky and like Jeff Daniels is the, the, so charming. Jeff Daniels is such yeah, absolute pitch perfect just gee golly wholesomeness. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the fish in the movie within the movie, he's the fish out of water and that's mm-hmm. so brilliant because I mean, she could have fallen in love with a play like he 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 could have made the movie within the movie something like you know Top Hat or yeah. a Fred Astaire movie, and she falls in love with the Playboy. And interestingly enough, Jeff Daniels would go on to star in Pleasantville. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. He is yeah well utilized there as well. Um, exactly. Um, but instead, he's a fish out of water within the movie. In the movie, and that's who she relates to. And once he's out in the real world, he's again a fish out of water. Um, right. I think I think I think what I think the thing about humanity that you brought up is sort of like everything that makes him so wonderful and makes her fall in love with him is exactly why he's not human. Oh yeah, no, exactly. It's because mm. she's not he's not part of this 
big ball of suffering <laughs> that, <laughs> that everyone else is. Mm-hmm. He is outside of it. He has lots of money. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fake money, and mm-hmm. he and they have to they have to make a run for it. Uh, and it's again, it's just a it's a charming comedy, but it it's so felt, and it's such. I think as much of uh, Manhattan is a love letter to the city of Manhattan. This is a love, love letter, letter to, to film, movies. to film, and to people who love them. And and uh, it's it's just it's about why we love them, and and that same reason is why they're not real. <laughs> the same, yeah. Uh, and yeah, there are people who are like, oh no, I kind of like this when things get to be weird and conflicted and. <laughs> there isn't a just a, and there isn't like a structured plot. There are few people in the audience who like that, but <laughs> this movie is about uh sort of escapism. And I think it was really well done how uh the movies are the escape and then later on even though it, it is in a sense a literal escape, it becomes even more of a literal escape when she jumps yeah. into the movie. She yeah. goes beyond that Curtain. And she lives that oh, and it's and it's all it's ginger ale, it's not champagne. <laughs> <laughs> that and then this works a lot better than it did in Last Action Hero. Yeah, well, little Austin O'Brien or whatever his name. Last is. Action Hero actually has a problem that I think most Woody Allen, most modern Woody, Woody Allen movies have is it was rushed to the screen and it could have used another draft and it could have used another edit. Right. He tries he tries to do one a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um, but, and the other thing I really love that it sort of brings up is the idea that everyone thinks they're the main character in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> they don't understand, like, even, even them who understand the idea of a construct and uh, the understand of a, of a, of a constructed story with a beginning, middle, and they all think they're the lead character. And, and they all have an ego. The, one of the best moments in the movie is when the waiter is like, you don't have to be a waiter anymore. And he goes, I can do what I always wanted to do. And he starts tap dancing and doing a song and dance number. Yeah, and that's what I that's think is great. interesting about uh, just the art of constructing a character, I guess, which is kind of touched upon in that Tom, you can see, you know, Tom is Gil's character yeah. and he played it with bravado or whatever and it comes out. But maybe Arturo had was played with that hidden you know, idea in the back of his mind that, oh, Arturo's a maitre d' for the time being. <laughs> he really wants to be a tap dancer. And that's, and, yeah. that's, and that's a common thing you hear a lot of in, like, extras and, like, bit parts is yeah. they're like, I, I have to keep, I have to be on set so many hours. Like, I have to do something to yeah to make make me get noticed so I can, so they, they do create that backstory. Mm-hmm. And, that, and then the fact that that exists yeah. is so great. Um, also... There is a there's a really good AV club. AV club has a column called Scenic Routes, um, where this. Um, hold on, let me. I have it up. Um, Mike D'Angelo, who is one of my favorite uh, critics, I follow on Twitter. Not necessarily because I agree with him, but because he loves stirring the shit and uh, insulting movies that everyone else loves, and he usually has pretty good reasons for it. Um, uh, anyway, he has a he has a column on AV club called Scenic Routes where he examines one scene in a movie. Um, for every article. And this one, he did uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, the scene where Jeff Daniels um, steps off the screen. And something he brought up that I didn't even realize is that um, breaking the fourth wall, which he literally does mm-hmm. um, when he leaves, yeah. like breaking the fourth wall is always done in movies by someone looking directly into the camera. Um, every, you know, Groucho Marx did that a lot where he's, <laughs> there was, there's actually a, I can't remember what exactly what movie it is. 
uh, I think it was Horse Feathers, where um, someone starts singing and Groucho Marx walk, and it was actually the the set and everything looked exactly like the uh, the um, sort of the the big uh, luxury suite set that um, Tom steps off of. He turns to the camera. Actually, I'd like to go back and compare. I bet I wouldn't be surprised if the set was based off of it. He goes back to he goes to the camera. He goes, just because I have to sit through this doesn't mean you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> and every time anyone breaks the fourth wall, they're always looking right at the camera. Mm-hmm. But the way, but because that would feel like impersonal, almost like he's addressing the audience. The way Woody Allen shoots it is, which I I didn't notice. I didn't even before I read it. I didn't notice. He shoots it wide. Right. Where it's you see her and you see him on the screen and you see him looking directly at her, so there's no mistake that he's talking yeah. to her. Yeah. And it's like, and that's that's so much more powerful to see this. And again, I think the idea that it, the images on the screen are giant and larger than life is something that's, that's been played with a lot. I mean, most recently, like Inglorious Bastards, when the giant laughing face of death uh, appears at the end, right? Um, at the in the movie theater, um, and uh, it's. You see this giant, like, because it's a close-up when he turns to look at her, this giant face looking at her tiny body. And again, it's this sort of idea that she's dwarfed by what she worships, which is him. And then he would step up the screen uh, and to be with her. I I can't imagine anyone doing this movie and not that not coming across, anyone else doing this movie and that not coming across as, like, the cheesiest, like, that is by far the most romantic like warmest cheesiest thing I've ever seen in a movie and it is so powerful. Yeah. Um you know I I the whole way that is shot. I do recommend that you you check out that article cuz he goes into more detail um about how that shot, but that whole scene is really wonderful. And I I definitely think something that has to do with why it's so powerful and you don't even think of it as cheesy is just because the whole movie is played in this very very straight way there's a lot of jokes and everything but that romance is never called into question the rules of it are never exactly. called and into question and you buy you buy into it yeah and that's why and it's that casual approach to this fan fantastical idea yeah. which makes it so charming as opposed to something like last action hero where it keeps again that's i there's a couple other movies where people walk into the movie uh, sherlock jr yeah um but it would have been nice if that kid would have just accepted it and instead of questioning it the whole time, but or like just yeah, acknowledging was, that, acknowledging it. Yeah, in retrospect, like especially when you compare it to that movie, one of the worst things about Last Action Hero is he keeps going, "But it's a movie. Look, but this isn't real. You're a cartoon <laughs> character. Yeah, <laughs> this is all a movie. <laughs> I'm Otto Bronstein. <laughs> um, but and it's and it's like as opposed to that, it's it's just this has happened." And this is this is what's happening now, and she's going with it just as sure as she's going with the idea that she snuck out. You know that that she snuck out to see the movie, and she said she was babysitting, or you know, like, or she knows that's when she went out to see Tom. But it's just everything is just played exactly straight, and that's what makes it work. Yeah, and I, I think another reason is that because uh, the rules of this you know universe of this movie world are never made explicit. Like you can just make anything up and. It'll be really like fun, and you don't have to get too heavy-handed. And it's just you can have a lot of good material written from walking the line. And I think, and I think, and I was, I was, I've uh, last time I first time I saw this, I had this thought, and I had this thought again when I watched it again. Is or today is when I first saw Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I thought, oh, 
he's doing Annie Hall. I like this. Um, and then when I saw Purple Rose of Cairo, I'm like, oh, Charlie Kaufman owes his entire career to Woody Allen, <laughs> which is not at all to say. I mean, I know Tim, I know Jim, you love uh, Charlie Kaufman, and so do I. Not at all to say he's derivative. Yeah. But I think Charlie Kaufman's I this sort of emotional grounding into this fantastic idea um, where he's it's super meta, but it's not interested in the meta. It's interested in the emotion behind it. Right. It's like even Synecdoche, New York, it isn't about, oh, what if this guy kept going more and more and more? It's about it's about this guy who's trying to compartmentalize. Right. And, he deal, gets to, and deal with mortality. He gets to the uh, Charlie Kaufman always gets to the emotional core um, Which is what I respond to, oddly right, enough, ex- exactly. via, like the email said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what I respond to as well um, with Charlie Kaufman's movies. Yeah. Um, and no, but I could definitely see the parallels here. And I sure. mean, I mean, I think I think Eternal Sunshine is more or less a blatant remake of Annie Hall. That being said, it does it in a very different way, but it has the same that's ending. That's because Michelle Gondry is a weirdo. Well, right. No, <laughs> but I mean, and I don't think anyone, I think any director wouldn't have done it exactly like... Yeah. Um, exactly like Annie Hall. But it is... And so it's it's clear he's very influenced by this. And this is, I think, something that Woody Allen isn't giving credit for. Um, I, I think Purple Rose of Cairo, again, is sadly kind of overlooked um, when when it comes to... Obviously not comes to film fans, because it's, it's definitely one of his most beloved movies. But when it comes to the yeah. general public's knowledge of Woody Allen... Um, it's this sort of romantic, and it's not the only time he's done this sort of romantic thing. Uh, Radio Days, I think, is another movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think he did, mm-hmm. I think he only did a few years after this. Um, yeah, Radio Days is I 87. Think, yeah, I thought, or, yeah, yeah, I wish I could have rewatched that one again. But, um, no, after seeing this, I'm like, you know what? Fuck New Nightmare. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously. I mean, that's like Wes Craven, you know, saying, why do we watch horror movies? What makes us go to the horror movies so much? And, you know? So that's what bothers, like, when you explicitly state what you're trying to convey, and, like, I use the word pandering a lot, it seems like, lately, but that's, that to me is what bothers me about a lot of films, is when they, like, actively dumb down, you know, to where it's like, well, let's, let's make sure we get this message across to the audience in a direct way, and Woody Allen doesn't do that with Purple Rose of Cairo at all. He just lets the story speak for itself, and you get and people like somebody somebody else could be getting a completely different experience out of this watching it this movie like, than we did. Um, and again, I think a lot of it is just he so feels the material, right? And I think that might be like a problem with his later movies. I mean, if you want to compare Melinda, Melinda, yeah, <laughs> where he feels completely separated, from, where it's from that he, it, world. it it feels more like he's going by the numbers, and it's not. He doesn't have a strong emotional connection, and it seems like he's just making movies just to make movies, and not because he has anything. Well, he to, loves to say he loves which making I understand. movies. He loves making movies, and he's able to make movies. And I think I and I and I really do strongly subscribe to the Orson Welles quote that as far as masterpieces go, you only need one. Um, and I think Woody he's Allen had a few. He's had a few. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's had a little, he's had a number. Yeah. What, what, what were the ones that you would say are his then? Okay, I would say Sleeper in Love and Death. All right. Um, I would say Annie Hall. Back Manhattan. to back to back. Yeah, Annie Hall, Manhattan, Purple Rose of Cairo, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Husbands and Wives. Not Hannah and her sisters? Not, not a... Um, I'm not you too know crazy what? about Hannah and her sisters. Really? I, yeah. think, I, I need think to Hannah, rewatch it. But... I think Hannah and her sisters has a... I think it was like a, had a studio-forced happy ending. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and it would be... 
something to do in a discussion about Han and her sisters, but there's I think there's a few ways to look at it, even though yeah. it seems like that. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where, you know, we're talking about art as an escape from reality where uh, Diane Weist's character becomes, you know, this successful writer or something all of a sudden. Maybe, it, you know, maybe it's all in her head and that's just what she wants reality to be, that maybe that's the, her ultimate happy ending, but... I think I, a lot of people just I actually, take it at face value. I couldn't speak at detail on uh, Hand and Her Sisters. I, the last time I saw it, I do. Lo- I think that's a really good movie. Yeah. But as far as masterpieces go, um, I, I would probably have to watch it again to say for sure. But I don't. I wouldn't include it. I would agree. I really like. I really love deconstructing Harry. I don't think that's one of his masterpieces, I, but I really like it because it's so vastly different than some of his other movies. I mean, he's still got the same themes, but just I his, think, a, his approach and the cutting, the sort of French New Wave. Yeah, absolutely. That. That's that's another like again. That's he he he's done a, a German expressionist film um, in uh, things you everything you want to know about sex, but we're afraid to find out. He did mm-hmm. a you know Italian neo realist kind <laughs> of yeah, <laughs> not neo realist. He did a like an Antonioni parody. You know, right. he's done the Berg. He's done all sorts of Bergman for um, sure. He did Fellini with. I mean, I think Annie Hall was sort of like eight and a half, and then I think Stardust Memories was really like eight and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Where it was just Jesus, yeah, so much. Uh, I I definitely agree that he's got a lot of masterpieces and he's got like just a lot of really good movies. Just yeah. that fall a little short, like Radio Days, which you mentioned, yep. which is this over romanticized, which he even yeah you know, he says says he says just the, like Manhattan at, at top of the movie he goes, mm-hmm. excuse me. If I romanticize my childhood, <laughs> my 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 street wasn't always rain swept and stormy. I just remember it that yeah. way. And nice. uh, yeah, and I think it's uh, he's just a good guy. Yeah, I really um, I really like uh, everyone says I love you. Um, it has its problems. Some of the casting choices are pretty poor, uh, but I love. I mean, I'm not like nearly as huge into musicals as I think you are, but no. I love the spirit of that movie. It puts me in a good mood. It puts me in a good mood to watch people sing off key for some reason. I don't know why. Like, I don't know. I like that movie more in theory than practice. I I, I can see that. I, I I like I like watching it, but I wouldn't put it up there with the top. My problem Woody is Allen I don't. Can I, I, my problem is it's sort of his very go-to characters thing where. Yeah, oh, it's complicated relationships, and she loves so, him, but she's not sure. Like, it feels they, very they turn into caricatures. It feels very rote as far as the characters and stuff go. Right, they're not fully developed, but I love the musical numbers. I think they're fun, and I like the songs. You know, it's not what it's a it's a light. You know, it's le- Some, it's it's minor yeah. Woody Allen. <laughs> to, to, to quote another Jeff Daniels movie. Yeah, uh, and I really like Sweet and Lowdown. Sweet and Lowdown. Well, I was going to say yeah, some I'm, would I'm, consider that a uh, yeah. I, I Sean would, Penn is amazing in that movie. I would say that, and I'm not sure about you guys, but one of the movies that I like of his that I found that most people aren't as crazy about as I am is uh, not not Broadway, Danny Rose, because I didn't like that. It's the Bullets Over Broadway. Uh, yeah, I like that. I no, really like that one. I think that's, that's really a good, good. Good comedy. Yeah. Again, I think you Diane a... Weist won an Academy Award for that. Yeah, movie. yeah. <laughs> Don't speak. Don't um, speak. <laughs> uh, Chaz Palminteri is really funny in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think as far as. Uh, Woody Allen always denies that there are Woody Allen stand-ins in his movies, but I think, if anything, he's proven that he's not very objective about his own movies. Kenneth Branagh in Celebrity is one of the worst. Yeah. um, I think John Cusack is one of the best. I think John Cusack also does a little bit of, even though Woody Allen is in Shadows and Fog, John Cusack does a little bit of Woody Allen in uh, that as well, when he, Hmm. he plays a guy visiting a whorehouse. 
I haven't seen Shadows. No, he, of the actually, Fall. no, he's not. He's not Woody Allen. That because here's one of the thing I think a lot of people have um, sort of the the uh, neurotic main like com- comedy lead um, where mm-hmm. it's become where it has been taken that I think is not at all indicative of Woody Allen is he's very neurotic and he stumbles over his words and he you know he does a lot of ums and uhs but he is hundred <laughs> percent like just, sexually yeah. confident. And I think like if you want yeah. you want to look at like Shia LaBeouf or Jesse Eisen Jesse Eisenberg or other people who are now playing that sort of neurotic yeah. um male lead, they don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um but Woody Allen is always hundred percent sexually confident. Um that's like that's that is I mean there's there's Marx Brothers and there's sex, and that's that's those are the two <laughs> things. That's, yeah, that's that's the, that's the last line of uh, that's the last line of uh, Sleeper. He goes, "What do you what do you believe in?" He goes, "Sex and death, two things that come <laughs> once in a lifetime. Except after death, you're not nauseous." <laughs> um, you know that's that's definitely it puts, a, it puts a lot of dialogue into his female characters about how much of a stallion stallion he is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which well, is really funny, but. I think, know, I think I mean I think pe- part of women find Woody Allen attractive. It is true, and I, oh, yeah. I I think it part of it is he's playing he's playing the fact that he is not the typical right. You know, you know you you can't uh, love. What was the line in Love and Death where it's like uh, you can't be worthless? You're made in God's image. It's like you think God <laughs> wears these frames. <laughs> um, or when she's talking about being suffocated by Sinatra and then she knocks off mm-hmm. his glasses. Yeah. Like, that's such a perfect... Again, that's another example of his subtle dialogue. And this is in Annie Hall. Yeah. Um, it's a perfect example of his subtle dialogue where it's like she's telling a story and then all of a sudden perfectly undercuts how he is by comparing him to Sinatra, you know? Right. By making us imagine Sinatra turning into Woody Allen and and it, ex- and it expresses sort of how undercut he is. Um we can get into the, you, uh, the last decade too. Did you want to talk? Do you have anything else to say per, about Purpose of Cairo? Uh, not Purple Rose. I did want to say something real quick about deconstructing Harry and why I think it was definitely an interesting venture and why I think it's like really. I don't. I don't know the word for it. Like he used a lot of new techniques mm-hmm. in filmmaking that he hadn't really before. Like yeah. the whole uh, Robin Williams, like where his character goes out of the focus. focus. Like, there's no easy way to do that no, for I, a movie. And, like, he wasn't about ever digitally mm-hmm. editing stuff. So, like... I believe he was shot separately. Um, I can't... I don't know for sure exactly how that was done. Um, i have to look into that. But it is... And I think Deconstructing Harry is... I think uh, Purple Rose of Cairo actually plays, like, one of the short stories in Deconstructing yeah, Harry. Of, yeah. um, and, that, again, that's hmm. those are sort of what, what his, his short yeah. stories were like. Yeah. Where it's these the one about the cannibals hilarious. Where they're the... both where it's both funny. <laughs> it's always funny and fantastical and kind of a fable. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think like another summation of Woody Allen maybe is the ending where he has this epiphany like a man who can't function in reality but can only function in art, and that becomes his the basis for the story he's been trying to write. Yeah, or he's, yeah. He's I mean that Woody Allen the man is definitely a, a workaholic. Yep. Um, and at this point, he's at this point he he's not without interesting movies. I think Scoop is very charming. I think uh, Match Point's pretty good. I think Match Point's good. It's it loses points because it's such a retread of Crimes, Crimes and, and misdemeanors, misdemeanors. But I like the themes that are explored. In it, both and it movies. explores it in a slightly different way. Where yeah. Crimes and Misdemeanors the nihilistic is nihilistic kind of approach. Yeah, Crimes and Mis- yeah, that's more about like the silence of God, and then yeah. uh, Match Point's more about just blind luck. Right. 
Um, I didn't see Cassandra's Dream. I did like Vicky Cristina Barcelona. I did too. Vicky Cristina Barcelona is a beautiful movie, and yeah. I do like this idea that Woody Allen's going to all these different cities. I hope he makes yeah. another movie. In he's the... going to do Rome next yeah. after yeah, Paris. Yeah, I think he's got one more. Yeah, he j- in Spain, one or two, I think. Yeah. And, and again, I think this the last is, the last well, one was filmed in Spain. Yeah, he's working. Is... He, I mean, he's he he just wants to make movies. And he, there are these production companies who go, if you make these movies in our cities, we will we will pay for them. And he goes, I'll do that then. <laughs> you know? From some film critics that I really trust their opinions, they they've had nothing but high praise for Midnight in Paris. I've heard I've heard middling things, so we'll yeah. see. I'm excited for it. I mean, I want. I don't I, have I a wanna... lot of faith in Owen Wilson. No. The other thing, <laughs> the other thing about Woody Allen is he has a very uh, um, lackadaisical approach to directing actors. Yeah, um, which is why the performances can be so great or so bad, like even within the same movie, mm-hmm. um, because he said like the one direction he gives all the actors is don't be afraid to change the lines. Yeah, like the Gene Wilder <laughs> story that everyone seems to know. Oh, that's so. Good. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't. I don't oh, think I well, know uh, the exact story. For uh, everything you ever wanted to know about sex, but right. we're afraid to ask. You know, he's in one of the little vignettes. About a man, a doctor that falls in love with a uh, that's sheep. sheep. That's like the mistaken. one really high point of that movie. I'm not a big fan yeah. of that movie, but that that scene is has, that uh, that short th- uh, film is amazing. And mm-hmm. uh, during filming, he went up to Gene Wilder. Didn't they? Didn't really converse much except for this one time that Gene Wilder has recalled on a few occasions. He like asked, you know, are you thirsty? You need tea or anything? Like, uh, no, I'm fine. All right, uh, don't be afraid to change your lines if you don't think they're funny. Like, <laughs> yeah. okay, and that was it. Yeah, and um, again, so luckily at this point, he's such a huge name actor and such, like, people just get nominated left and right for being in his movies. Um, so <laughs> Tony's swatting away a fly. Um, so everyone wants to work with him, even though he can't afford to pay them the kind of scale they want. Um, but so luckily he has good actors in his movies but because he doesn't really give them a lot of direction and because he just makes movies compulsively now as a habit uh he doesn't really do second drafts he doesn't spend a lot of time editing them it at this point it's sort of just interesting to see what's coming out but i'm i don't think he's ever going to make another masterpiece and i'm fine with that i mean again you only need one and he's had a dozen or not a dozen but he's had a handful i think vicky christina is going to be as close as he comes for yeah the rest vicky of christina is beautiful movie and it's really of... interesting mm-hmm. i don't i don't know why he chose to have a narrator that was so young no like oh, that was yeah. really and, and he started to rely on narration in his right more recent movies and i'm not crazy about Melinda it at all and Melinda but... too, so, I, well know. i think i think vicky christina barcelona it gives it a sort of a short story kind of a feel which I do, I do think adds to it. Um, kind of like in Little Children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's uh, it's it feel it's supposed to feel like they're kind of living out a a book or something. Mm-hmm. I've come to terms with accepting that in some movies. It's fine. Yeah. Like I used to be kind of uh, like uh, you, uh, Brian I, Cox's character in adaptation. Right, right. Where and there is narration is overused in movies to as a crutch for writers who sure. don't know how to do exposition. And so there is a sort of feeling where if a narrator is selling you what happened, then it's automatically bad. But that's not the case. Mm-hmm. That's I, – in fact, I would say a Woody Allen movie, the example that's a really good example of that not happening is uh, Husbands and Wives. I, um, because Husbands and Wives, 
at first I didn't know what the hell they were doing because everything's all handheld and shaky, mm-hmm. and um, there were there's interviews um, cut in between. Uh, there's actually, I believe it's him talking to a psychiatrist in deconstructing Harry, but he uses yeah. the yeah sort of interview sort of technique too. And there's interviews in between scenes. Like, they're being followed by documentary crews, but they never acknowledge the cameras are around them. Yeah. Right. And I was like, what? what is this he's going for? It's not a documentary. Scenes from a marriage. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen Scenes from Marriage. What's... Oh, you'll like that. Okay. But <laughs> if you like husbands and wives, you'll like Scenes Sort of from what marriage. I realized is there's no need for exposition at all. He just, yeah. like, that just was throws his, you right in. That was his way of just letting scenes play out. Um, because... Uh, you don't need to have setups to the stories. Mm-hmm. You don't need to ha- waste any time with. Oh yeah, I just came over to borrow that book you told me about. Yeah, they, hold on, I want you to hear this record. There's none of that. It's just, it's just you go right into the meat of everything. Mm-hmm. So at first I was sort of put off by the approach, and then I, I really began to respond to it. And I again, I think that's an example of, that's a narrator that's telling, not showing. But I think it's it's in service of something else. It's not just laziness. Sure. It's uh, to achieve something else. Um, I would I, agree. Do you wanna, I'm going to go real quick through all of his movies. And we're just going to say, uh, have you seen What's Up, Tiger Lily? Is that with, uh, is that like the overdub? Um, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the overdub movie. I've seen half of it. It is horrible. I think yeah, I've I, I, a few jokes were okay with me, but like, like, well, it's one of the running gags where the main character just keeps describing all these people that attack him in just these variety of very strange. Yeah. But that was really mm-hmm. it. I fell asleep I, mm-hmm. twice <laughs> trying to watch yeah. it. It was, it actually, it actually kind of runs out of steam and it starts just following the plot of the story. And it's like, why are you doing that? But this is this, he didn't actually direct it. It was a Japanese movie that, they had and they realized it didn't make any sense. So they, so one of the producers and I love I love Hollywood stories like this. They go, "What if we got a comedian to overdub it and just make silly voices all the time?" And they go, "Who's a hot comedian?" And they go, "Woody Allen." And Woody Allen's like, "Yeah, I want to be in film. This seems like a step in the right direction." So he accepted it. And <laughs> there's a loving and then they forced loving spoonful musical number in the yeah. middle of it. <laughs> oh wow. That was a high point, I think. <laughs> All right, so his first proper uh, directorial debut, Take the Money and Run. A fake, uh, another stylistic uh, exercise, fake documentary. I think it's very fun. Yeah, Yeah, it is. is. Mm -hmm. A lot of good gags. This was was when he was still uh, translating his stand-up comedy, which was a very surreal storytelling style with lots of one-liners, like, into his movies. Mm -hmm. Um, His next movie, he did uh, Bananas. Not, not, Not such a fan. I, I think I, I don't think it's as good as uh, it's kind of innocuous. I it's think not it's, like yeah, I, it's not that actually has but lines directly from his stand-up routine. Yeah, I think it was just right. for me. It was like uh, too frenetic. Whereas yeah. Take the Money and Run had like a, a, a maybe not a strong story, but it followed yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know normal storytelling. You know, an arc. But this I, yeah, one he is, definitely went crazier with um, bananas. And <laughs> what I, I do like about bananas. Uh, is it has one of the best courtroom scenes of all time. Uh, so uh, I do like that. And then uh, Harvey, uh, not Keitel. Picar. No. Who's the announcer uh, who oh, talks Car- like Car- this? Car- Harvey, Harvey, no. Harvey? Howard Cosell. Howard Cosell. Howard Cosell, yeah. Him and Harvey Keitel, I wonder if they ever met. We can only hope. Yeah. 
I hope they are good friends. Um, <laughs> him narrating, him uh, them consummating the marriage. That was fun. I think there's fun buttons in it. It's I don't. It's definitely not as strong as uh, his next movie. Um, oh no, never Played mind. His next movie Sam is good. Is, oh, Played Against Sam. He wrote. Played Against direct. Sam. He did not direct. Right. Like he wrote that. that. It was based off a play hmm. he wrote. Yeah, okay. I would say yeah. "Played Against Sam" is one of his masterpieces. I love. Really? Yeah. I I love it. I I think it's I think it's really strong. I wouldn't. I'm not so. Again, I I never even consider it because he didn't direct, direct it. it yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's totally a Woody Allen movie. But uh, that is a st- that is an hysterical and funny movie, and that also yeah, gets it's... into escapism yes. in a way yes. art mm-hmm. affects like how you live and yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, then he and did everything. everything you wanted to know about sex, which he said hit and miss, mostly miss. It was like an idea that someone pitched to him. And Kentucky he goes, Fried Movie, as done by Woody Allen. Well, this is, I think this is before Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah, yes. But um, it was something someone pitched to him. They go, "We have this book, and we want to adapt it into a comedy." He goes, "Oh, I can write sex jokes, no problem," mm-hmm. uh, and which he can. But he goes, "I kind of ran out of steam after three. But he <laughs> so, is, no. but he is credited as sperm number one, and yeah. you gotta love that. And I, de- <laughs> I definitely think. Uh, like you said, Jim, it was more missed than hit. I think I would say it's about half and half. I'd have to watch it again because yeah. I think I fell asleep during one <laughs> one of the ones that was more of a miss. Uh, yeah. Was that was that the guess my perversion where it plays out like an old game show and it's like so dragged out and long? I think it yeah, might have been. So or bad. I'd I'd have to check. Why but. do men cross dress? Was another weak one. I th- I think that was. Oh it. yeah, that was, that that was, was pretty bad. That was definitely the one. Okay, and I, just, that... I just liked the line like, "What if he's masturbating? I could wind up on the wall." I don't know. I just <laughs> like the. I'm, no, there's, I, it's there's... an easy laughs for me no, at the that, last. It skit. was it was funny. Um, yeah, I think I think the giant them trying to put a giant bra on monster breasts was kind of funny, and Gene Gene Wilder. <laughs> I think definitely one of the funniest things I've ever seen is Gene Wilder screaming in a crowded restaurant, I am not a waiter! I am a doctor! Yep. <laughs> Whenever he has a neurotic fit like yeah. that, oh my Gene god. Gene Wilder is so great at that. Yeah. Um, and then there's Sleeper, which I think is definitely a Fantastic. masterpiece. It's wonderful movie. Uh, a lot more slapstick, which I think he's remarkably capable of. Uh, I, th- I know a lot of people who have disagreed, though. Um if only Stanley Kubrick would have taken taken some cues from from Sleeper. And there are what cues? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's just you know what? You know what my problem? You know what my problem with Full Metal Jacket is not enough orgasmatron. Right. Not enough Japanese flying pack. <laughs> Goddamn Japanese flying pack. And there are a few interesting a few interesting things about Sleeper, which I think should be mentioned. That he played clarinet for the soundtrack with yes. his band oh, yeah. which yeah. fits perfectly with like right, right. most of the scenes mm-hmm. and uh the fact that when it was originally thought up or maybe even written i'm not sure how far he went supposed to be two parts basically okay. one of his character in the 1970s living as his character did living oh, as right. miles did yeah, and then yeah. jumping forward 200 years or whatever it was mm-hmm. which i don't think would have worked as well no it definitely works better as is Especially because he gets, you get to see his introduction is the defrosting scene. <laughs> <laughs> He's just sort of comatose, but fucking around on a motorized wheelchair. <laughs> oh god, it's amazing! And yeah. by the way, Diane Brilliant Keaton, Diane Keaton is never appreciated enough as a comic actress because she plays sort of the straight man in Annie Hall, which is, but in Sleeper and in the next movie, Love and Death, she's great, fantastic, especially Love yeah. and Death. She's so fucking funny. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> and she's uh, like it's like she plays things big but like she but she's so funny 
just um i i I love when napoleon busts in and is like uh i heard you were talking to someone i was praying it's like (laughs) i heard two voices i do both parts do you find me attractive as a man yes i think Mm -hmm. that's your best bet (laughs) yeah you have such beautiful skin thank you it covers my whole body (laughs) (laughs) oh man that movie that is by far his funniest movie i think um, I love Sleeper, Sleeper, but I think I think Love oh, and Death yeah. is his by far his funniest. And it's movie. definitely a transition between straight mm-hmm. slapstick comedy and more of a intellectual, intellectual. Even though he's mostly sort of, mostly playing it as farce, the yeah, yeah no, he but is. The, but the he's but taking the, the thematic thematic elements of like your Dostoevsky and all that kind yeah, of stuff. and he and he's playing on them. But at the same time, these are the themes that come up again and again yeah, yeah. in his yeah. in his and that is and it is his. And, you know, that was his first um, tribute to Bergman. Right. Uh, and there's some Buster Keaton in there. He pays homage to uh, Battleship Potemkin. Yeah. That's, yeah, again, that's, that was sort of a Seven good, Seal. I think there's a little bit of that in Sleeper and some of the right. mise en and stuff. Um, there's, a, there's a little bit of – there's definitely a reference to modern times in Sleeper when he gets caught up in the giant, oh, yeah. uh, like, VCR. And uh, he's got caught in the gears and all the tape and stuff. But I think this was sort of the big step where he was experimenting with different film styles right. and paying mm-hmm. homage and stuff. Um, and apparently had a miserable time. Yes, because filming a... it because it was so damn cold. Yeah, he couldn't even on location. Couldn't even play his clarinet. His fingers were. Uh, but uh, and then after that, of course, there's Annie Hall, which is goes without great, saying. Yeah, yeah. It goes. It, encyclopedia of film techniques it's okay yeah it's not bad not <laughs> it's bad. not bad it's not hey, a bad movie hot tip for you annie hall good little flick it's no yeah. it's no return of the king <laughs> <laughs> extended you gotta see extended right oh man every year i sit through all the extended versions of Lord of the... no all right my friends tried to do that to me once and i was like nah, i'm not gonna come <laughs> i i got it. that's that's a day that i'm gonna lose and i'll never have right. back we were talking we had a bonus episode on groundhog's day and we were and i was talking to him about uh, I was watching the trilogy, and at that point, I had only seen Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers, and because I, I wanted to watch them all again, I never watched Return of the King. Yeah. After Two Towers, I go, I got it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not for me. Uh, anyway, uh, speaking of not for me, Interiors, what? Not a bad movie. It's yeah. It was. It's kind of weird because it's just too ultra serious. In love and <laughs> in love and death, he was kind of. Making fun of the shot style that yeah. Bergman sometimes kind yeah. of does, but in this one, you know, just he one film it. later, he uses it and doesn't yeah. very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I, it's it's hard for me to say that he was making fun of Bergman because he's so yeah, much maybe not it, making but, fun of it. But, but at the same time, it was definitely the it was definitely played for laughs. But I think I think he was I think it wasn't it necessarily making fun of Bergman. It was it was juxtaposing the. Uh, the shots from what what movie is that? Ide- uh, Persona is the movie with those shots, and then just saying wheat, <laughs> just yeah. talking about wheat. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he's a big fan of like Chekhov and Eugene O'Neill, and yeah. they were super dark, ultra serious, and had but very little again. Well, interiors, not so much Chekhov, but interiors. He has said that he wanted to prove that he could make a movie without any jokes, but it really. But even before I read that, like it feels like it. It yeah. feels like he's really trying. And he tried that again later too. Oh yeah, with what? Another woman. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that movie's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll get there. Um, after Interiors, there's Manhattan, which we talked about. Then mm-hmm. Stardust Memories. 
I have to see it again because I had. I don't have a good memory of that one. No idea what was going on, it's and apparently there's very, a lot going on. It's very. It, he claims he again. He always claims this isn't about me. These are fictional stories, and I think that's actually something he played with in deconstructing Harry, where mm-hmm. he's where people keep confusing the stories yes. he tells. But it's because the stories he tell are based off of his real life. And right. like apparently, after the fires or like the oven scene where there's smoke coming out, everything after that's a dream. And yeah, like, like there's just a lot of stuff about where it's it. Him where trying to, it's him. It's him. It's a very direct homage to Eight and a Half and the the ending sure. especially. Well, yeah, they, the beginning yeah. for sure beginning and the ending um where it ends with the you know big circus sort of and uh i'm just hoping he pays homage it's, to... but it's very mean-spirited where it's like people like people the, the now infamous line yeah. where he goes i like his, your older funny ones where he just seems really like just seems to have contempt for his fans and that line comes <laughs> up a few more times that's yeah. not good um after stars memories was a midsummer's night sex comedy which i thought was okay yeah, it was okay. yeah. It Absolutely, it, it was him again trying to do like a the like infidelity a, thing, right? And sort of good to see to Tony Roberts it. again. <laughs> yeah, Tony Roberts. Yeah. No, Tony Roberts is to seeing Tony Roberts in this was sort of like uh, it's sort of like when you see Harvey Keitel in Last Temptation of Christ, mm-hmm. where it's like you're not from that time period. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you know, where Tony Roberts right. is just like uh, just like let's take him to the summer lodge and we'll frolic and. Play with fireflies. It's like, what are you doing? You should be calling a taxi. Uh, Zelig, which again is probably one of his most overt stylistic mockumentary. And again, all of the again never getting credit where credits due. Mockumentary, which he did with Take the Money and Run, way before Spinal Tap, which yeah. Christopher Guest is always credited with inventing it. Rob Reiner, I guess technically. Well, yeah, I guess Rob Reiner, but Christopher Guest took it and ran with it, so he usually gets the credit. Yeah. yeah. And um, that's all he does, so... Yeah, well, uh, for your consideration, isn't... But it's also well, that's good. the one I haven't and, seen. And yet. the big picture, yeah, which the is big great. Picture, that was before... <laughs> but that was... Wait, that was before... Uh, that was Waiting 19, for Guff, That was yeah. before Waiting for Guffman, though. That was 88. I guess I haven't seen two, then. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Big picture is great. Big picture is actually really good. Um, yeah. Anyway. Zelig is... Zelig? Like. Okay. Do you want to talk about special effects? You were talking about how he doesn't really... That, Robert Zemeckis got so much praise for his special effects in oh, Forrest yeah. Gump. This is that I think this does that even better. Um, again, it's not as ambitious as Forrest Gump. He's not putting him next to Kennedy, as you know, and all that. But like uh, this, and it, he pay... makes it a lot easier on himself because it's supposed to be grainy and look right mm-hmm. old, which can cover up, you know, sure a lot of the problems that Gump had talking to John Lennon. Yeah, that that was that was probably <laughs> the the probably the low point of the of that. Uh, maybe also the kind of awkward. JFK lip singing. I believe yeah. he said he had to go pee. <laughs> 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 uh, it didn't. That's the only thing I don't like about Contact. That Zemeckis decided to put Bill Clinton in the movie with Jodie Foster and saying things out of. Con- I think he even got in trouble for that. Like Clinton was pissed. <laughs> like why'd you put me in this movie about aliens and I'm talking about war? I'm in reality. Was it's Bill like Clinton so pissed p- about Beavis and Butthead to America? Probably. Yeah. I would never make them. Agents of the <laughs> alcohol, tobacco, and firearms industry. That's my uh, Bill Clinton impression. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll never do that again, as long as I live. Thank you. Uh, after uh, Zelig, Broadway Danny Rose, which you did not like. I just It just wasn't a strong... Three hours? We're at three hours. All right. 
Well, I was trying to keep it quiet. But. No, no, it's just <laughs> exciting. They know it's three hours. They're looking at their iPod. Yeah, it, it just I I didn't think it was very. Yeah. It wasn't a strong effort. Just a throwaway for me. Yeah. Uh, Purple yeah, Pyro. I would agree with Very that. Good. Hannah yeah. and her sisters, which we talked about a little. Very yeah. good. Radio um, Days, we talked about. Mm-hmm. Excellent. September. Boo. I think I have not seen that. I think that's Part the. Of, yeah. I think I, I, think, I, have, I, I own think it. Though. September and Another Woman was him trying to cover super ultra seriousness yeah. again in the very same way he did with interiors and failing. I believe September he actually like shot half the movie and then completely recast it. And shot I heard it that again. about really? one one of the movies that he did, and I'm not sure if it was September. Or something else, but I I remember that being a thing right. because Mia Farrow's mom was in that movie and got cut out when he redid it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. maybe started a little. I'm not a big fan of his contribution to New York stories. Oh, I, I think it's. A I've, I haven't. Weak. I've actually seen it, but I know that Oedipus, Larry David Oedipus, is in it. Oedipus yeah, he Rex. is. Yeah, um, he, Larry David is actually has a very small part in uh, Radio Days. He does. Yeah. He, he's like it's yeah. like a long shot where he's right. like counting down something. Oh, yeah, right. you can go on YouTube and check that out. That's pretty funny. Everybody. Alice, which is again, it's oh, sort of him trying mis- to do a fantastical thing. But... Crimes and misdemeanors. Missed that one. That was oh, before. No, Alice. I was trying to cover it up because Crimes and misdemeanors kind of shitty. No, what? <laughs> no, I'm joking. Oh, okay, I love Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, I think my I think the number one thing I love about it is that people quote Alan Alda's quote about comedy as if oh. it's actually no, like it's... what Woody Allen thinks. The most uh, blowhard. When it's when it's clearly like Woody Allen making fun of people who think comedy has a formula. Uh, mm-hmm. That's I love that. Yeah. Crimes of Misdemeanors, the masterpiece. Shadows, Alice, is, Alice, Alice is pretty weak. Yeah, Alice is weak. Um, Shadows and fog. Don't forget scenes from a mall where he went down on Bette Midler in a theater. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Way to go. He played a he played a surfboarding he played a surfing yuppie in that movie. Yeah. Wore like he Hawaiian had a ponytail. He had a ponytail. I, I'm I'm gonna have to check this one yeah, out. I guess it's fucking yeah. horrible. Yeah. Um, Shadows and fog. Shadows and fog, which good isn't even. I don't. It's good. It's a good cinematography, though. I don't think it's as good as duplicating what it's trying to go for. As no, definitely. I, not. I like that um, Donald Pleasance plays a Loomis character in it, where he's obsessed with finding the serial killer. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, it's got a lot of references to M and stuff, and it's it's got more of another thing that I think we haven't covered yet is that Woody Allen loves it putting in movies. And that was actually in purple Rose Cairo, which is prostitutes and whorehouses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I think prostitutes sort of covers a lot of the sort of questions he has about sex and love and how they get mixed up. Right. Um, but he, he actually, he just loves to have like Greek choruses of prostitutes. Just, like that's just one of his favorite things. Um, Manhattan. No, uh, husbands and wives, husbands and wives, and husbands and wives which we've talked about. Yeah. yeah. Manhattan Murder Mystery, which is it's delightful to see. Delightful. Delightful to see him and Diane Keaton again. Not very good. But Annie you know Hall, that, too. Did yeah. you know that that was Annie Hall had that entire subplot? Yes. The murder subplot. Yeah. 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 yeah Annie, Hall, Annie Hall, by the way, masterpiece of editing. Yeah. Not Woody Allen's doing. And I'm glad he didn't name it Anhedonia, which is yeah. a psychological term for depression. Uh, <laughs> again, that, that was, that, that's an example of him overthinking it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Okay, then there's Bullets Over Broadway, which we talked about. Excellent. Mighty Aphrodite, speaking of Greek choruses. Greek cho- literal Greek literally. choruses. Some might, some, might call this, some might call this a masterpiece. Uh, I would not say so. I uh, like I like very Mira good. Sorvino in it. It's very, she's I like Mira Sorvino and uh, Michael Rappaport a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Michael, Rappaport. yeah. Michael Rappaport's good in uh, Small Time Crooks as well. Um, sorry. Let's go real quick. All right. Everyone <laughs> says I love you. All right. No, we, sat, we talked like about it. Everyone Says I Love You. Like we that. talked about Deconstructing Harry. We talked about Celebrity and... Yeah, I, this, I haven't. That's that's one of the few I haven't seen. That's Sweet Lowdown, very good. 
I wouldn't say it's a masterpiece, but I think Sean Penn's very good in it. Yeah. I've heard a lot of good stuff about it. But I think I, I own it. Those... It's full screen, though, is the problem. I right. bought it, and I didn't realize it was full screen. Then he started crux. going into his uh, DreamWorks The era. DreamWorks nightmare. Yeah. Oh. So he did Small Time Crooks, which is the first Woody Allen movie I ever saw. So I'm a little, yeah. I'm a little biased. I think it's charming and fine. I don't remember too much that, about it. And that's my bias. <laughs> that's me rooting for it. It's charming and fine. Yeah, I don't me- um, I, I don't have any good memory of it. Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Uh, I kind of remember him it. being kind of funny in it, but it's horrible. I think Wallace Shawn is in that as well. Oh. Mm. Yeah, he, he plays the guy who explains everything that's happening. <laughs> what a Gotta shot. love it. Yeah. Uh, gotta love it. That's Small Time Crooks, Ooh. my friend. Um, Hollywood Ending, which is Horrible. Horrible. Definitely um, on the bottom five. Again, even though it's horrible, I still quote it. I still there's one quote from it all the time, right? Where they like, "What do you think they're going to think of the movie?" Because they're going to bum rush the projection booth and hurl it into the sea. Whenever I see a bad movie, I said I, I always say I wanted to bum rush the projection booth and hurl it into mm. the sea. Um, anything else which I did not finish? It was so bad. No, it's bad. Um, and Tarantino put it on his top list of the decade. Yeah. If I had one question to ask Tarantino, that'd be it. Uh, I I like Jason Biggs. I really like Jason Biggs. I even like Christina Ricci. Horrible movie. Um, maybe I should try to finish it one day, but I'm not looking forward to it. Melinda, Melinda. Not very good. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, he sort of had his big, oh, shit, Woody Allen can make good movies again with Matchpoint. Yeah. Again, it's a retread. Recycling themes that he's dealt with before, but, you know, I still liked it. Yeah, it was it was good. I, I mean, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't crazy about it, but it's returned to form at least. Right. Okay, scoop. Yeah, uh, I think it's charming. I want I, I, the only reason charming I want to see fine. it is because it's his last um, starring role. role yeah. in his he's films. very funny. I think I think there's a lot of funny lines in it. Um, where my, my favorite being where he said my ex wife said I was childish and I, I would have had a great retort, but I raised my hand and she wouldn't call on me. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I, good. I fucking good. love that line. Uh, Cassandra's Dream, which Never is very dreary and it. covers a lot of the same things as Matchpoint and Crimes, Upon a, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Not good. Um, uh, then Christina Barcelona, which we talked about, Whatever Works, which seem, which I think maybe the high expectations in retrospect, yeah. we forgot because he just came off of Vicky Christina Barcelona, Scoop and Matchpoint. Like we were thinking, oh, he's on a roll again. Yeah. And we forgot that he makes shitty comedies now. Yeah. <laughs> so is, Larry David talking to the audience. Yeah. Well, is is it uh, is it the fault of, well, I don't know. You could It could go either way, but it was one of those movies that he had a script written already and he just pulled it out of a drawer and reworked some of the political jokes apparently and <laughs> threw it together. Yeah, and I it think does, maybe that's it does feel like that really kind of where he's just out of touch and he's like he's oh now all these country bumpkins are coming into my apartment. It's like really it's fucking two thousand ten. You're gonna make a movie about <laughs> country bumpkins in New York? You should have made a movie about the country bears. Yeah. Should have made a movie about uh, Country Bears coming in. Big country, the band documentary. Ooh. Great things come in bears. <laughs> <laughs> Second new best tagline ever, De- dethroning the king. Tom, Tom Arnold, Arnold is stupid. Is stupid. <laughs> oh man. Okay, and then uh, whatever works, you will meet a tall, dark stranger, which is I all right. It's all right. It's fine. It, it again feels very rote, 
And then Midnight in Paris, which uh, released in cans. Everyone's it will be coming out within the next couple of weeks in Chicago land area. Oh, so good. I'm and excited to see it. I'm going to actually make the effort to see it in the theater. Let me know. Yeah. Let me know because I, I, I missed the last one in theaters. Yeah, me too. Had yeah. the red I wouldn't box. say I missed it. I think I was in the only one in the theater for whatever works. All right. We're, we're at the three-hour mark? Um, now we are, for sure. Now, now we are. Okay. I was just saying that we're getting to the three-hour okay. mark, I should so, say. Uh, so our apologies to uh, Chuck, who uh, said he likes him closer to one hour. Was it Chuck? Was it Chuck? It was Luke. Or... Luke. Yeah. Luke. Yeah. Luke. Our apologies Luke. to Chuck for confusing you with Luke. <laughs> our apologies to Luke for calling you Chuck and for going three hours. That's um, okay. But I think we really dug in with our teeth. That's because he has a lot of movies. I mean, yeah. next time we'll cover, you know, well, no, Walter Hill has a lot of movies. <laughs> we need to find a director that only has two movies. Yeah. And then we'll just spend 20 minutes. Like uh, Duncan Jones, Jones Duncan, whatever. Yeah. The guy Duncan, directed Duncan Moon Donuts. and Duncan, Source Code. Duncan Duncan, Duncan Donuts. Duncan, uh, Duncan Hines. <laughs> I bake a little cake with Duncan Hines. Never mess with Calvin Klein. Calvin Klein's no friend of mine. Don't want nobody's name on my behind. So thanks, everybody, for listening to the director's Identity just on my feet. Rockbox. Thank you so much. I was quoting Run DMC's Rockbox there. Let's get to the closing of the show. Oh, yes. Um, thank I'm you for listening. I'm thinking we should go, get going. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, directorsclubpodcast.com. Directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Um, I'm at Patrick Rapol. What's your uh, Twitter? Jimmy Jim... I forgot. Uh, Jimmy Jim James. Jimmy Jim James at yeah, uh, um, Tony. And I'm at Tony Valdivieso. <gasps> oh, we know! V as in Victor, A-L-D as in dog, I, V as in Victor, I, E as in echo, S-O. Nice. Nice. Until next time, we will see you next time. Let's say who we're going to do next uh, episode real quick. Walter Hill. Walter Hill. Walter Hill. Yeah, that'll be exciting. We get to talk about Warriors and uh, Streets of Fire, even though I don't think the Bruce Springsteen song has anything to do with it. True. Yeah. All right. Till next Thank time. Thank you. I am Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Paul. I've been Tony, and thanks for having yeah, me, thanks, guys. Tony. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for showing we'll up. definitely need to have you on again. You're yeah. great. Thank you You're very wonderful. much. Absolutely. And you have a smooth, buttery voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Butter. Yeah. Like Goodbye. See you later. See you later. Thank you so much. After the phenomenal success of Annie Hall, the hilarious Oscar-winning comedy deal... Oh, let me try that again. Make him say, uh... Na-na-na-na... Banana-nana... I can't hear the snare out of my headphones. Is something going on? Can I get the snare? Can I get the snare? Oh... (laughs) 